You know, I can't believe I missed the holiday party again. <laughs> it's a different kind of holiday party. <laughs> Anything interesting happened in the last few weeks? <laughs> no. It's quiet. Peaceful. I saw a tumbleweed roll by. Yeah. You know. Nothing much. Apple doesn't really do much in the in the fall. Uh, well, <sighs> things <laughs> You have to laugh a little. At I, least I, uh, <laughs> I was talking to my wife the other day about uh, we were on a walk, and I, I said, you know, I feel like it's been going nonstop for a long time, and then I realized it totally had been going nonstop for a long time. We went to we went to Ireland for Ool, and I realized, like, literally, I went to the Apple event, and the next day I got on a plane and went to this event in Southern California, this festival over the weekend, and then from there I went basically straight to Ool. And in the middle there, like I got the one review unit of the of the MacBook Pro, and then like the day after I came back from Ireland, I got the Touch Bar review unit of the MacBook Pro, and it just it it is nonstop. It's just like one thing after another, all fall. It, you know what I mean? And it's you know, it, you know, tough life for us. You know what I mean? Reviewing yeah, no, it's, it's <laughs> amazing good. new computers before anybody yeah. gets them while jetting around the globe to meet interesting people, yeah. but. It has been hectic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not complaining. It is, it is a privilege to do this, but, uh, but it's this is the high season. I mean, that, that's was, the way I keep telling telling people it's high season. This is this is when everything is happening for for Apple. It's like this this time period and like WWDC are the two yeah. craziest times of the year. I think this is crazier, honestly, for us. I because just yeah, I don't know. Somehow, to me, even that several weeks long period between the iPhone seven coming out. And the the MacBook event, I don't know. That somehow seemed jam packed with stuff too. Yeah, it rolls in Apple Watch, you know, two rolls in there, and yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on, lot a lot of stuff going on. Um, anyway, long story short, it just wasn't a good time for an election that I had a like hundred and ten percent obsessive interest in to <laughs> roll no. through. So yeah, there's stuff, lots of stuff going on. It, it was a it was a busy fall. I do feel like we've reached, you know, it's all subsiding a little bit now. And I, yeah. I feel like that, that mentally I'm starting to shift gears. I still got some stuff that I put off that I need to pick back up again. But it's like mentally shifting gears into, you know, holidays, end of year. People, you know, if you want to make a holiday stories and gift guides and best of yeah, the year yeah, lists yeah. and stuff like that, it's starting to feel more like that at last. And like, which is good because yeah. like Thanksgiving's next week. So, I mean, here it is. <laughs> I thought it was a little the MacBook Pro review. I, I got all. I got three of them. I got I got mm-hmm. the the button one. Uh, what are they called? We're calling it the MacBook Escape. I guess uh, we are. It makes I me think that. of a Journey album, but you know, whatever. I know I got that the same time you did. We got that the day of the event. Yeah, they had those. Uh, I got the 13 inch with the Touch Bar. I don't know. A, a week later, about at least a week later. I don't know if it yeah, was six was days the, or eight the, days. It was the. It was the week I was in Ireland because, right. which was the week after the event, because I got an email from Apple on like a Wednesday in Ireland saying, "Can you come by Cupertino on Thursday to pick up your your 13 inch MacBook with Touch Bar?" And I was like, "Uh, no," <laughs> and so I didn't get that one. 
Uh, and then I got the 15 inch, I don't know, but that was late. The 15 inch was, it was really only just a few days before the, the embargo deadline. So I, I opened it and I turned it on and, and looked at it, but I, I spent much less time with the 15 inch simply because I already had the 13 inch with the touch bar set up right. with my stuff. You know, it's like, I've got BB edit on it and, um, uh-huh. You know, I've, I've, it's just there, and and the little, you know, the thing I do to wrap block quotes so they all look like nice markdown block quotes. That's already right. there. I and just, again, not that we're complaining about getting review units, but right. you know, onboarding to a new Mac is a lot of work, and when you have to do it three times in three weeks, it's right. it's like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> like, what what files? What do I install? Can I migrate? No, I don't really want to migrate, but then I have to install everything. I have to, you know, hook it up with Dropbox and. Um, I don't know about you. I, I also have to juggle like um, there are these hard breaks of like five authorized iTunes computers and like oh. 10 authorized Apple music devices. Yeah. And so I'm always juggling like logging out of, of different iPads and phones and stuff in order to get w- slots back to put other computers in there. And it's a, uh, yeah. So it's again, not, not complaining. It's, it's great that we get to do this for our job, but you know, like that, all of this stuff is not meant to be done as frequently as we do. them. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Uh, what I, I mean, even little things. I've run into a little thing where um, my Amex card has a maximum limit on how many Apple to pay devices it can be hooked up to. <laughs> and oh yeah, and you know, and it's you you it's it's magnified because it's like two. Now you get two phones when they give you review phones. They give you one of each size, and it's like I got iPads and stuff, and it's like I don't even know you know. And, and some of them I've foolishly left named. John's iPad. <laughs> so it's like, right? It's like, what? Which one is it? I don't know. I mean, what? And yeah, I just occasionally start... there are like updates that reset the name. So I realized the other day that my iPad is called iPad again. And it's like, well, I don't know when that happened, but it's like, no wonder I went on my device list and I saw three things named iPad uh, and had no idea which was which. It's, yeah. It's uh, I I haven't been able to do Apple Pay. I've been testing the Apple Watch too, and I actually haven't written about that yet. But um, it can't do Apple Pay because it's just I think my um my financial institutions have given up on me, and they're like, no, no more devices for you. Every <laughs> time I try why. to pair it, it's just like I I can't even forget it. You know. <laughs> oh, and my bank. Uh, sometimes what I've done is I I generally if I use a charge card, I use my Amex. It's just I just use it everywhere, and the only times I ever don't use it is if I'm in a place that doesn't take Amex. Um, uh, but to get around this Amex limit, if I have a device that I'm testing from Apple that I don't really want to spend, I know I'm not going to spend a ton of time on, you know, like, um, for example, at WWDC, they gave me a, an Apple watch with the beta of watch OS three, which, which like, it's like, I think that's when they gave it to me. I don't know. But at some point they gave it to me. It wasn't a new hardware. It was just, you know, here, you could try this thing out with the Watch OS 3. And I thought, well, that's interesting. But it's like, I'll just I'll just put the Watch OS 3 beta on my own Apple Watch. You know what I mean? And so I did, you know, I didn't want to go put this Amex limit on it. So I used my other card. My 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 bank sends me a letter in the mail every time I set up Apple Pay that it's like, congratulations. <laughs> it's so totally written from the perspective of like, you're going to have one device, you know, that you do this with and we'll tell you everything, how it works. And, you know, and I just keep, I, it's like, I, I, I should have kept all the letters because I'll bet I've got 15 of them by now. Well, I, I, I think the advantage of this is it's so easy in so many different ways that you do, you review tech products to lose perspective if you're not careful. And this is like the reverse of that, which is there's nobody 
I think, more aware of the pain of of basically upgrading to a new device than mm. reviewers because we, we have to do it like with every device. Like for a while there, I could tell you everything you need to do to migrate from a MacBook to another MacBook or from a PowerBook to another PowerBook because I was reviewing all the laptops at Macworld. And so like I would go through, I would migrate everything a couple times a year. And so, I mean, that's good because we get to experience that. And I think Apple's got some issues with with a migration assistant on the Mac and with some of the stuff they're getting better, but like, you know, they, they've got some issues there and those really come out when you're migrating multiple times a year because regular people only might do it once a year for a phone and once every several years for an iPad or a, or a Mac. I, I have spoken. I, I still think it's too hard on a Mac, but, yeah. um, and I think part of it is because I don't, I think part of it really is a technical challenge and not just a disinterest. I think because you can, you, you still have so much freedom of what to put where yeah. on a file system on a Mac. And it's, you know, really, it's just technically not, it's not, you can't just say clone the disk and open it, you know, it's because there's all sorts of stuff that's a different because it's different hardware. Um, you know, I, th- I think it's the number one motivator why they do, um, why they did desktop and document syncing the way they did it was that yeah, I that do was too. sort of like their, if you keep everything, if you buy everything through the app store, which you know not, some people do, and and you're not a superpower user, but you keep everything in documents and on the desktop, and and then you log into a new Mac, like it'll just sync your stuff, and you're ready to go. It's right. it's for the rest of us who've got you know legacy apps, non Mac app store apps, all sorts of stuff like that, and then you turn to Migration Assistant, and I'm not convinced Migration Assistant is doing so hot. I try I've tried it uh, twice with these two MacBook Pros that I've got. Hmm. And it failed both times. You know, so, it's interesting. I've given up on Migration Assistant, to be honest. I haven't used it in a few years. I, I mean, and maybe I should, you know, give it another shot one of these times. Although what you just said I, makes me I don't not. think you should. Uh, what <laughs> I've got. I don't recommend it. What I have is an Apple Notes document. I started this two or three years ago, setting up a new Mac. And so it's. The first thing I do is I, I, you know, go through the first run. I put my iCloud, I, you know, go through and put my iCloud credentials in. Mm-hmm. So because I put my iCloud credentials in, my note syncs. And then right. the note has a checklist of, you know, do this, do this, do this. Oh. It's, you know. And, so but it's like an onboarding it, script more, that, not for a, yourself. Yeah, more or less. And then some of the stuff it's I'll Like a pre-flight skip. checklist, right? Like do this, then yeah. do this, do this. All right, got it. So you don't miss a step. Yeah, you know it kills me. BB Edit will sync all of its um. <laughs> let's let's nerd out for you. It's you and me. We talk about baseball. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about BB Edit. Um, BB Edit will let you put like all of its support stuff in in Dropbox, which is great, and I use that. But its preferences file does not go in Dropbox, and so every time I move to a new Mac, I either have to manually reset all of the preferences, or I have to go to, uh, you know, a home folder, library application support, uh, no, library preferences, com dot bare bones, you know, BB edit preferences, and copy that file over so that my editor is the way I like it. And I do that every single time I move Macs. That's like one of those things on the checklist is I got to move my BB edit preferences because they're, they don't, they don't cloud sync. I can't fish them out of Dropbox. Yeah, I've been meaning for. I've used that ever since BB Edit added that feature. I mean, it's a couple of years ago at least. Um, and at first, I really liked it, but it's grown to annoy me because I end up with like the same documents open because I also have the preference set to oh, yeah. restore open documents, and they're all almost all almost everything I write in BB Edit is stored in Dropbox. So. Mm-hmm. 
when I go to a different machine and use BB edit there, Dropbox has the same document. And so it's open and to, and, and I don't, I, I, I have found that I don't want that because I yeah, leave I too many, too. I leave too many documents open. Yeah. And, um, and oftentimes I, you know, I'll leave one place and finish in the other and then I go back and it's like, oh, I don't want that. You know, it's opening documents that I'm done with because right. it lost state because I'm not, you know, keeping them in open and in sync myself. And, and that day yeah, I, I agree. I've noticed that, but I, I like the fact that, like all my scripts and clippings and yeah, things like I that are, are just sort of there everywhere. That's nice. I do too, but I th- and, and I d- I know it's going to annoy me to go back to the old way. Where if I write a new script or adjust one of my scripts, just tweak one of my scripts, that to get that per- that script to percolate everywhere, I'd have to uh, do it manually. You know, right? Zip up the the. I don't know. Maybe what I should do is just turn off the preference to reopen documents and see. I don't know. I've had a, but it's a mild annoyance that I've had. I've been thinking for like a year. I should like dig into this and and redo it, but I I don't. I know there's so so many things that we do with our computers that are like it's annoying, but it doesn't. You, you gotta you gotta clear the bar of I'm gonna sit down for an hour and figure out what the hell is going on, and so then <laughs> you're just like, nah, I'm not gonna leave it. And probably do we do you have more than an hour of misery? Maybe maybe not, but it's just enough. I do that all the time with like automation stuff, where automation's yep. great, but you, it's gotta you got to clear the time to like do it. And then once you do it, you're like, yay, I, I, I've got this automation thing. But so often it's just like, yeah, I'm not going to bother. I, 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 it, it's close enough and it's not enough annoyance for me to break out an hour to try and figure it out. So you just yeah. leave it. I actually, you know, it's funny you would say that. I actually did a couple of those things last week uh, <laughs> as a sort of get my mind off of other things, you know, mm-hmm. get my mind off the internet. And I found it very difficult to... Um. Uh, to write honestly, I'll tell you what I read a thing. Uh, you know, let just keep going meta here. And I know Merlin and I talked about this last week extensively. You know, blah blah blah, the election and hard feelings. But I saw a couple of other people with sites. Stephen Levy had a good thing on his back channel. Um, he had. I think it was just a day after the election. But uh, I, I have a half of me says I should just charge ahead and write some. You know typically daring fireball topic stuff because other people who read daring fireball i'm sure would more than even usual love to have their mind occupied by this um you know to get it off thoughts of the election and and <laughs> president Donald trump yeah. uh but then there's another half of me that says that is uh it's it's so it, it it's inappropriate right that that would something this m- uh, you know, a seismic level happens. It's just, it's, it's foolish to write something that is so off topic. And I, so I, I found myself unusually jammed last week in terms of actually getting anything written. So I, what I did is I occupied myself by doing a couple like Apple script things that I'd been meaning to write <laughs> yeah. for myself. And it really, it helped. I, it's the sort of thing where I, once I start like writing an Apple script and I'm, yeah, I mean, because half of it would, for me always with Apple Script is <laughs> what the hell is the syntax for black? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I find myself like a, an hour can go by and I haven't had any thoughts of the election and I'm and it's like the best hour of my day was writing. Uh, what is it here? I've got it just opened it. It's a Apple Script that op- creates a new text file at the current right in the current Finder window. Hmm. That's nice. Yeah, I mean, I I've. Uh... It's it's funny that we're talking about this because uh, the as we record this, I think the the news 
kind of broke today that um, Sal Segoian, who was the automation and Apple script product manager at Apple for years, is no longer employed by Apple. I did not and, know that. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That just he just mentioned it. He did a he did a presentation at the Mac Tech Conference today, and and yeah, I'm not. I, I have to say I'm I'm sad, but I'm not really surprised because I'm not sure Apple's eye has been on that particular ball for a long time. But you know, and it's not for everybody. And I, when I talk, people know that I do automation stuff, and they're like, oh, you know, I it's hard to get into, and and that's all true. But then you know, every. And again, I do leave things for a long time and sometimes, and it's like, oh, well, you know, I should automate that. But every time I do one of those, I finally put in that work. Um, not only is it kind of a pleasure to solve the problem, I, and I think to myself, this must be what computer programmers feel all the time. But, um, you know, once it's done, not, I, I can hand it to other people sometimes if they want it. I've done that a little bit. And, you know, things get passed around and it can make, it just can make your life better. Like I, I have a bunch of things now that are, they're not even Apple scripts, they're, they're uh, shell scripts that run inside a, uh, a service. So basically, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you basically make an automator thing that says, do this shell script. Yeah. And, and then you take wire the, that to... Take the current selection as input and pass it to the script. Yeah, and so I yeah. do that for like I've got yep. I've got all these scripts that either I'm I'm cl you know clicking on something in the Finder and, and doing a, a keyboard shortcut or I'm I'm choosing it from the the contextual menu to do all sorts of like audio processing and stuff for podcasts and I just do it in in it's it's all scripts running in the background and I got a lot of these scripts from Marco Arment who is very comfortable with the command line and just issues all these things from the command line I'm like I'm not going to do that I'm going to put it in a little you know, I'm going to wrap it in Automator and just hit a keyboard shortcut and do it. And it's great. And every time I do one of those things, I think to myself, I can't believe I went months where I was bringing right. up the terminal and dragging in folders to get the path names and then issuing the the shell scripting commands and all of that. And now all I do is point and click. I mean, that's the that's the great thing about Mac automation stuff. And iOS too, really, is once once it's done, you know, it's out of the way. All you do is go boop and magic things happen. And you know that's 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 the abstracted computer user interface in a nutshell, right there. Is you shouldn't know what the steps are. You should be able to build the steps and then put it aside and just keep doing your work. Yeah, and some of the utilities you know that uh, are along those lines, like Text Expander and Keyboard Maestro. I think Keyboard yeah. Maestro does this. I'm almost certain Text Expander does. Is there's a way if you go to like the About box or something, it it shows you how much time you've saved since you've been using it. And if you've been using, I, I've got some of these utilities where I somehow, it, it's like I look and it tells me I've saved, you know, like, like 10 hours of time over so many years. But yeah. that's like at, at each little step. Like if one of them for me, I've published this somewhere. I don't know. It, it's on, I think it's on Gist or something like that. I've written about it on Daring Fireball. But I have a very particular style of title casing I use on Daring Fireball. Right. Um, where there's a, you know, every, you know, big word gets an uppercase letter and then there's a specific set of little words that are not like of a and um uh and it can be tricky though to do it to to automate it because it you can be fooled by things like uh quotes in the text that's being selected because then the should be capitalized if it's the first word in the quote, because it's like the title of the thing. So I hacked together a script years ago that gets it right. 99.9% .9 of the time. And I have a exactly like, you know, like you said, it's an automator script or, or uh, service with that shell script running in it. And I have it mapped to shift shift command T for yeah. title case. 
And there are some, I, I think about how much time that has saved me over the years. And it's, it's just unbelievable. And but before I wrote it, even though I've been using it for years, I think, well, all those years, I was like, arrow, 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 shift, you know, retype the letter, arrow, arrow. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, um, well, I mean, that's, um, Keyboard Meister tells me I've saved seven hours, by the way. I just looked. Um, it, it goes back to um, regular expressions, right? I mean, you did you write the chapter in the BB Edit manual about regular expressions? Was that you? No. Uh, no, but the second half of it is. So I, I think this is fair to say. I don't want to take too much credit. The regular expression chapter in BB Edit was there when I started. Um, but BB Edit was using uh, a very old, regular expression library it was really a, a derivative of the like the, the original unix one um a guy, oh, a guy named henry somebody somebody wrote it and it only had like the basic regular expression syntax right. it was almost more like a glorified wild cards um yeah and all the fancy stuff that you can do when you read that chapter and you're like holy crap was added when I was there. And so I wrote the, you know, the added onto the chapter to write all, it's all the, the PCRE stuff. stuff. Yes. All right. Yeah. That's anyway, that that's, I, I tell people about grep about regular expressions and, and they have that same look as when I talk about right. automator or if you talk about shell scripting, which is like, I don't want to learn it. I don't understand it. I don't know. And it's like, I get, I get that. But like, especially when I, when I would talk to writers and editors about grep, I'd be like, you don't understand text is what you do for a living i am telling you if you buy if like buy jeff friedel's book uh, you know or read yep. the bb edit chapter th- there are things in there that you know you if you learn it all of a sudden you'll be sitting there thinking oh man i can't believe i need to do this this is going to take me an hour and if you know the language of grep if you know those symbols you can do it in two minutes and it ha- only needs to happen once <laughs> and you realize that it is you know, it is a life skill that you need to have. I, 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 I'll tell you the truth. This is a true story. I, I didn't learn regular expressions while I was in college, even though I was a BB edit nerd, comp sci major. I, I it, it just look, I, I mean, I think the furthest I ever got was like dot plus and dot star, which is, you know, just more or sure. less like, like old DOS wildcards. Find everything. Um, and I just never saw the need for it. Um, and, like a year or so after college, I, I got a temp job uh, at the Philadelphia Inquirer in the advertising department um, where they had a bunch of Excel spreadsheets with all of the ad rates for everything. And and it was each department had their own thing. And each one had like seven pages uh, or, or 12 pages of ads in a, you know, uh, uh a matrix, you know, so keeping them in Excel as where the business people set them made total sense. And then, you know, there'd be graphic designers who turn them, you know, into a book that they could send out to people. Um, so I got hired to do these books cause I could do graphic design. And so I did the first one and this is how everybody did it, but there was all sorts of gibberish in columns that wasn't public, you know, and it was, it may, must've made sense for the business people who'd use the Excel spreadsheet, but it, it didn't need to go in there. And so the way that every, you know, it was done before and the way I did the first book was I just went in and edited each column by hand and it was just, you know, tab, delete, tab, delete, and, and just pages and pages and pages and pages and, you know, a couple of days work easily, or maybe a week's work for the whole book. Um, mostly just deleting crap 
And I thought, there's got to be a better way. And I thought about it. I, thought, I think this is the sort of stuff regular expressions are supposed to solve. <laughs> and so I wrote, I just spent like a day writing like a, just a couple of regular expressions and BB edit. And then so I went from Excel to text, BB edit to just run a couple of saved grep patterns, <laughs> imported it into the document. And I was done. And I literally, I mean, it literally turned like a week's work of work for each book into a, about like two hours. <laughs> and so I just, yeah. yep. but I acted as though I didn't write the script and just sat there and, you know, browse the web. <laughs> it's, um, that, that's actually going out of Excel is that's like a pro tip for, for all this stuff too. Is like, I can't tell you how many times I've had something in Excel that's been a disaster and I just select it and paste it into BB edit. It comes in as tab delimited and or you save it out as a tab delimited file and you and you do all of the crazy text stuff and you just make sure that there there are tabs between the fields and right. then you bring it back into yep. excel and you're like look yep. it was it was all it was in excel all along but it wasn't you <laughs> you know you completely take it out uh, you know times where i've taken multiple columns in excel and i pulled them out and then kind of like mixed them and matched them and and and, and reassembled them in the right way and then you paste them back in and it's like, you know, it's like they, you, they never left Excel, but they totally came out right. of Excel. And it's not like you can't do some wildcard stuff in Excel, but, uh, and you probably can write Visual Basic scripts that do things too. But for me, it was just like, can I get this back to text? And can I, can I write a couple of pattern matching search and replaces that solve this problem? And usually the answer is, yeah, and you can take an hour of work and do it in 10 minutes, five yeah, minutes. That, it, I mean, it literally and then turned, surf the web literally the turned the a, a weeks, weeks of work into hours of work. <laughs> and I just got paid for weeks of work. <laughs> I felt like I deserved it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I will just say this one last thing. It was a long time ago. It must have been 2001 or so when I wrote that the, the second half of the BB Edit grep chapter. I would still say it's one of the pieces of writing that I am most proud of in my entire life. Because I've, people have told me many times when they find out that I wrote it, they're like, oh, my God, that was the first time regular expressions mm-hmm. ever made sense to me. And I can't take credit for the whole chapter. Um, but I did take a pass through the early part just because that was my goal is I do feel like I have a knack for regular expressions. It's the one area of programming where I'm better than almost anybody. It's, I, I just, I, I really am good at figuring out how to create the syntax to match what I want to match. Um, and it ends up creating these things that most people look at and they, they're like, what the hell? Um, yeah, but I, really I think that's, I think that's to, the big problem with with regular expressions is readability. Like people see them and they think right. oh, that it's nonsense. I can't do it. And it's like right. no, no, no. If you learn it, it's actually fairly straightforward. Not all of yeah. them, but most of them. But they look like nonsense. Yeah. Well, I just thought you know, but this is something. This is like a, a perfect combination for me because I have a knack for explaining things, and I have a knack for regular expressions. And in hindsight, I still feel you know what is it? Fourteen, fifteen years later, I I. I still feel it's one of the best things I've ever ever written. You know, yeah, I, I love that chapter. I mentioned that Jeff Friedel's O'Reilly book about this is great, but it's from the possession of a you know longtime Unix guy, and he talks about scripting a lot in that like shell and Perl scripting. And for me, the most direct application was BB Edit. So the BB Edit chapter is a much more distilled, clear approach to this then I, I love that Friedel book and I use I reference it all the time but um, but the BB Edit chapter is just a much more simple gentle introduction yeah I love it too. I love the Friedel book too and I read I've read both editions maybe three editions I think there might be a third ed- I don't know every time there's a new edition I there buy is it. a third uh, and I have all three copies and I've read them all cover to cover <laughs> 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 it is but it's a, a 
I would I would definitely say it is it it, it this Friedel book is so comprehensive and so well done that it it's I, I don't know that I've ever read any book on any subject where you could say, well, there's no need for anybody else to ever write a book on this again. But I, I would honestly say that that's the case with Friedel's book on regular expressions. I, I just can't see how anybody else would would say, well, yep. I'll take the time to write a technical book, which is really hard uh, on this subject when there's a book that covers it uh, both perfectly and extensively. All right, maybe I'll take a break. How about I take a break here and thank the first uh, friend of the show? It's our uh, good friends. Sounds good. Good friends at Casper. Casper, they make obsessively engineered mattresses at shockingly fair prices. Go to casper.com slash the talk show and use code the talk show and you'll save 50 bucks towards your mattress with one exception. Hold on. I'll tell you what that is. Um, so here's the deal. I've told you this before. I'll say it again. Casper has created one perfect type of mattress. It's, it's a combination of like memory foam and um, you know some other stuff that's just the right blend of types of things. So you don't have to pick between six different types of mattresses. That you, what the, how do you know what the difference is? These guys, it, it really is sort of like the Apple attitude taken to mattresses. Trust us, we'll do all the work, we'll make one type of mattress, and then all you have to do is pick the size. That's it. That is, it's, it just sings to me, this is how a mattress company should do it. Now, in addition to that, because they sell, they make them, they, right here in the United States, in fact, and they sell them directly to you. You just go there. Uh, they cut out the middleman, and it, it enables them to keep their prices incredibly lower than the mainstream big brand mattresses you find in traditional mattress stores. Uh, premium mattresses often start at well over 1500 Casper mattresses cost just 500 for a twin 750 for full, 850 for queen, and just 950 for a king. So you could get a king from them for less than like a twin from a lot of the other big brands. It's crazy. Uh, and like I said, they're made right here in America. Now, biggest thing, you think, how am I going to buy a $1,000 mattress and not even try it? You don't have to worry about it. They have a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they will pick it up at your house, give you a full refund, no hard sell. It's not like trying to cancel your cable. It, it's something like that. You just say, I want to send it back. And they say, okay, when? You know. And then somebody shows up and they take the mattress away and you get your money back. And that's it. I've had readers. Casper's been a sponsor long enough. I've gotten emails from readers who've done that. And they said, I couldn't believe how, you know, couldn't believe how easy it was to actually just send it back because they actually, you know, they didn't believe that it was going to be easy because that just sounds too good to be true. But that's how confident Casper is in their mattress. Um, get yours today, hundred nights in your own home. Uh, they have a dog mattress even that's a new product. And that's the one that you don't get 50 bucks on cause it's a lower price. But if you have a, if you have a dog, get them a good mattress, go check it out. I've had readers tell me, this is the thing. When I first did this read, I, I didn't know that the, that the discount didn't apply to the dog one. So I had a couple of readers who said, Hey, I bought my dog the mattress, but I didn't get 50 bucks off, but I don't care because my dog loves the mattress. So that's, that's the exception. Go to casper.com slash the talk show. And remember that code, the talk show to save 50 bucks on any, uh, human size mattress. <laughs> Maybe that would get my dog off my couch. <laughs> I love doing sponsor reads. Mm -hmm. I've gone from having it be the part of this job that I hate 
to a part that I I love. I think that makes the I'm uh, not to get podcasty uh, inside baseball, but I think that's make makes the reads better once when you can't. I, there are a couple of podcasts I listen to where um, you know the, the ads are are part of the entertainment, and you just can't. You know, you can't not listen to them. You can't tune out. You can't skip. You really gotta pay attention because they right. they uh, they put their personality into them, and the, you know, and that I think that makes the difference. If it's if it's like a hostage video or something, it's a lot less entertaining. But if it's uh, if it's part of the fun, then it's a lot better. <laughs> I can't even tell you how many emails I got from people about last week's show with Merlin. Were there a just thanking us like, oh my god, I needed that, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, for the election wave, and they were like, oh my god, the sponsor reads. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Uh, I will. I mean, let me just take a meta break here and just say I I don't have time to respond to all of my email, but I got so much email. Never, I, the most email I've gotten about an episode of the show in uh, as long as I can remember from people last week, and all of it. I I, I honestly didn't see one that was. I, I honestly thought there'd be some from Trump people or or you know people who just don't want to hear about people who are upset about the way the election turned out, you know, go back to tech dummy. I didn't get any of that. And which was sort of our goal. It was the way, you know, that we approached it and what we talked about. Um, but I got so much email from people thanking us for that. So I just want to say to all of you who listened, thank you for listening. And thank you for the good words. I have a podcast question for you, Jason. You don't, I mean, yes, do, sir? You, do you do any other podcasts regularly? Uh, occasionally. So you I do, occasionally, I hear in there. Occasionally podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just from time to from time. You mean like all, all per day? Yes, <laughs> Some yes, days yeah. I don't podcast. Um, I, I got a bug up my butt recently about something that I had never thought about before. And I this is the sort of thing that I tend to think about. And I can't believe I didn't really think that much about it when I set up the talk show to be on Daring Fireball. Which is... The fact that I, I've been doing it, I've always done it, it and in most of the podcasts, almost all the podcasts I see do it, but putting the episode number in the title and making the episode right. number a major part, you know, like the, the, the main anchor on the URL, that the, like at, on, on, on our websites on Six Colors and Daring Fireball, we don't have post number, you know, 23,123. Right. Uh, oh, that was a good one. Yeah, <laughs> good old, good old twenty three thousand three hundred twenty three. Mm. Why? Good why stuff. do we do this? And and you know, uh, TV shows don't do it. I mean, they sort of do now. Like where, sort like of. when you watch digitally, you do. You know, you're going through season one, episode seven of American Horror Story or or whatever. So there is, right. there's sort of that on TV, but I don't I, know. I, I it's a good it's a good question. Like why why do we number podcasts? And you, you, I can always tell what number it is because you actually do number them in the like the slug of of uh, the talk show, but not like in the in what people see, just like the written yes. descriptions, right? I, I um, well, but I have them in the metadata for the show, so like when you're looking at it in your podcast player, it will say uh, one seventy three episode one hundred seventy three. Yeah. Well, I switched recently. I did switch just a couple of weeks ago from putting EP period space the digital, you know, representation of the number colon. I took out the EP because I thought, mm-hmm. you know what? It, it It's cruft like that that I, I don't like. I like clean URLs. I don't like seeing 
.php at the end of a URL. I don't like seeing uh, all the gibberish and like the medium URLs. I don't like tracking any URL. I like the URL to have every single bit of it be meaningful. Uh, and the same way with like t the titles. I don't, but it seems to me, I don't know. There seem it, it, part of me thinks that part of it is that you want to know which one's the newest episode in your podcast player, and that maybe it actually is useful because it, you, it's it's a more confident way of making sure that your podcast player, whatever software it is, whichever sort order it's using, top to bottom or bottom to top, you know which one's the newest one. Mm -hmm. So I'm keeping it. I like when I made the change to get rid of the EP period. I was on the verge of just getting rid of them, period, and maybe just putting them in the URL. But then I thought, you know what? I think there's a reason everybody does it. And I'm curious what if, you think. I don't know if it's a reason that is – I don't know if it's a good reason or if it's more just sort of continuity. I mean, some of it is reference-wise to be able to say it's this one like saying – like um, like at Macworld, we had volumes – and numbers like internally we would have like you turn in a, a, a story and it would be 24-04 and that was literally 2404 was like the two the april 2008 issue or something it was like volume 24 number four hmm. and and that was partially because in a file in the file system like it would sort right <laughs> that all the 2404s would go together and then there you'd have 2405 and it would just kind of keep going like that. So I think some of it is just sort of like finding an internal structure and for podcasts, you could do it by date. You could literally say, you know, this is the one for, the, you know, this day in November of 2016. Um, and the metadata certainly supplies that. So you, you could just, you, you could just do that. You could have nothing. Um, I don't know. As a kid growing up, I really loved reading comic books, and the comic books always had that like, right. "This is Amazing Spider-Man number one eighty-three," and and they would have footnotes, and they would say, "Oh, Spider-Man faced the Scorpion before in Amazing Spider-Man number eighty-three, and sent him to prison." And you'd be like, "Oh, number eighty-three, yes. If only I had that issue, I could read that now." And I, I, I part of what appeals to me about the podcast numbering scheme is that which is just it lets you hang a a number on it and say for reference sake this is what it is rather than saying season one number three um or just giving you a date um but i i don't know if that's a great reason to do it um probably also uh the the other thought i had is since the incomparable is now at 326 episodes um i, I think maybe it was a it made sense when you did 10 episodes of a podcast in the early days of podcasting. And now there are these podcasts that have hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Right. We're pr pretty soon, if not already, there will very soon be many podcasts with, with um, a thousand plus episodes. No, of the Marco podcast. Was saying, and then, uh, it's sort of crazy. Marco yeah. was saying on ATP a couple, an episode or two ago, um, cause he knows because he runs the, the radio ones. Right. Yeah. right. He said that the that radio, they all, they're already there. Yeah, that the, and they do because there's radio stations that will publish five or six podcasts a day, like it, meaning like the fifteen hour minute, one, hour yeah. two, hour three, hour four of the you know yeah. the sports fans podcast in the morning. Yeah. Comic and book, so and, you'll have episode fifteen hundred. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> the comic book analogy is pretty good. Um, 
Yeah, that's the best for me is it gives you something to hang it on sequentially and say, look, we've done a lot of these. And and then um, I have that with incomparable. I mean, even though we built an index, uh, one of the reasons that we did end up using use movable type, which you use on Daring Fireball for the um, incomparable CMS is because... I wanted a I wanted an index of of topics, and so I've got an index of topics. So if somebody wants to see what's that episode where where John Gruber and John Syracuse had talked about the Godfather, you can look up the Godfather, and it'll mm. be like it's this number, right? But still, people will email me, tweet me, post on Facebook, whatever. They'll say, "When was that episode about whatever?" And it there is something nice about being able to say that was number thirty two, and just kind of point them and be like, "It's that one, that number." I don't know. It's like a little handle for an episode. Yeah, the alternative would be to just look at the dates and look at the somehow dates. and it, but that doesn't show up. That's not going to show up in the list in your podcast player. Well, but that's maybe a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Right. I mean, I think maybe podcast player UI is is in part based on the idea that uh, a lot of podcasts organize themselves by numbers, but like Overcast has a has a date field right and and there are dates for every episode in in overcast and i would imagine most podcast players are are kind of like that and certainly if if podcasts weren't numbered i'm sure they would all be like that yeah but if you if i'd like made mine not numbered uh or didn't put the numbers in the titles it's not going to change it you know i mean it's the collective decision that the podcast industry as a whole has made to do that yeah, it's, just, it, it's, it's more fun for me to say we talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark and the incomparable number eight than it is to say October 17, 2010 episode. Um. <laughs> was, that the, was that the gap in my appearances on the incomparable? Because we laughed about it. I was just on recently, like you just said, to talk about The Godfather uh, with John Syracuse and a few other uh, – uh, I forget their names. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's but a bunch. There was a bunch. It was it was great. I had a great time. Uh, I can't count the number of people who made the crack on Twitter that they can't believe that all of us long winded podcasters made a podcast about the Godfather that was shorter than the Godfather. I know. <laughs> um, but it was that it that I hadn't been on since that Raiders, was, that, that which was, was episode eight. <laughs> yeah, that was six, basically six years, October ten to October sixteen. Other than that day, we you were in. The, I interviewed my David Letterman episode, which was last oh, yeah, year. But yeah. but in terms of like being on the panel, yeah, we went yeah. from eight to three twenty three. That's fine. That's <laughs> fine. I tried a couple of times to get you on. And it's like you're busy, and and I I, I want to like with Merlin. I kind of want to deploy you guys tactically. I don't right. want to be like. I want to ask you when there's something I got this really good. And it was like, I, for like a couple of years, I've been thinking, we're going to do The Godfather. I'm going to get Syracuse. I'm going to ask John Gruber. We're, you know, we're, we'll make, we're going to make it happen. And we finally made it happen. It was great. Yeah. We got to talk about Abe Vigoda. Which, <laughs> you know, any chance to talk about Abe Vigoda is worth it. <laughs> Although we didn't make it happen until Abe Vigoda was actually dead. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's true. Maybe, maybe that was what I was waiting for. <laughs> Just I wanted Abe to pass on before we talked about him. I... <laughs> This is so amazing. I literally, at just five seconds ago, got a DM from Rich Siegel, <laughs> creator of BB Edit, <laughs> asking if I'd heard that Salad left Apple. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was spooked. I was like, is he listening? Do we have a live broadcast that I don't know about? Mm. I should have turned off the live stream for the incomparable. <laughs> but yeah, then I realized that, we're talking about him. Well, then I realized that asking, have I heard, means he's not. <laughs> spooking but that was kind of spooky given that we we spent a good chunk yeah. of the last 45 minutes talking about bb edit and automation and sal yeah um <laughs> uh new macbook pros yeah 
I read, I really enjoyed your review. Uh, I often think when I write these reviews, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I write them and sometimes I feel like I, I know that I've got this, like I my take, I I don't, you know, I don't care if other people agree with me or not, but my, I know that what I'm saying about this, I'm certain of other times I feel like I haven't had enough time or it's, it's. Some, a lot of times it's just that I feel like I haven't had enough time. But other times it's like I'm not sure that what I care about is representative of enough people. And mm-hmm. I kind of had that worry with the review I wrote of these MacBook Pros. Because um, I know that there's a lot of people who are disappointed in just the basic idea of the, the direction Apple is taking them. Um, but I read a whole bunch of the reviews from people who I really respect, like you and Joanna Stern. Um, uh, it goes on, you know, I read a whole bunch of them after, you know, after, after my review. And it really seemed to me like a, a very large consensus of, of that these are pretty good machines. Yeah, I, I tried to, I mean, because of the way it got kind of strung out, I, I got to write a piece, um, after the Apple event with, that was basically quick hands on with that 13 inch uh, the MacBook Escape, and then I got to I got to use it for a week and travel, and then write another piece about it. So by the time I got to the Touch Bar one, I felt like I'd kind of addressed the issues about like people's disappointment. And I wrote a I think a MacWorld column about people's disappointment and and what that meant for like why kind of Apple let everything build up and 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 people kind of this was a thing they could focus some of their disappointment and let it out. And and so I felt like by the time I got to the touch bar review, I could, I, it was great because I could just write about the touch bar. And it was like, I, I wrote a couple sections about the rest of the computer, but really it was an essay about the touch bar and touch ID. Cause that was the thing that was, was left. And frankly was the thing I found most interesting. And it's really why I really, I honestly, I'm not just saying it because you're on the show and you're a pal it's really why i of all the reviews i really think i liked yours best because i spent a, a relatively little amount on touch bar just because i had so much else to say about sort of the bigger picture um and the other thing i thought was that your video which focused almost entirely on the touch bar was super instructive in in like a in the difference between like the way apple would do a promotional video about the touch bar or in fact did and they showed it during the event yours was focused on look when you're doing real stuff like here's you know just stupid little things you know like the fact that you can uh it, when you adjust the brightness or the volume you can just put your finger on it and slide without tapping on the actual thing that shows up um it illustrated in a way that i feel like ten thousand words wouldn't have conveyed you really ha- it's a visual it's uh, clearly a very visual input device and so i feel like the video really helped have you done video reviews before i've done a handful of them i mean i did some at MacWorld, um and then since i've been doing six colors i've done a few you know they take time and the challenge is always am i doing this because everybody agrees that video is the future and we need to do video or am i doing it because video will be able to impart something that's worth imparting and and for me, it really is like, I will put in the time if I feel like this is going to be the best way to communicate something. And with the touch bar, it was very clear. This was the way to, I, I needed to communicate what was going on with the touch bar. And I had the time. I finished that review basically on Friday afternoon and the embargo was Monday morning. And so on the weekend, on like the Sunday morning, I basically sat down and said, all right, let's figure out if I can make a video here. And I ended up with like an iPhone 7 on a, in a, in a glyph 
attached to a, a like a little tripod um, and then a bigger tripod. And I tried to figure out like, could I get an angle where I can see the touch bar and it's not blown out? And then I can capture the screen and kind of put them together. And, and in the end, it did work, which is good because that's what I wanted is like, um, I wanted people to be able to see like what happens on screen, what happens on the touch bar, where do your fingers go? What's the result? Can you see the animations? Can you see how um, some of the apps have these totally wild like slider interfaces and others just have keys? Some of them color the keys. Some of them don't color the keys. And until, you know, there will be... It's, it's a little harder because you can't like do a screen capture of it. So it's harder to make those videos. And I had the yeah. advantage of having some time to shoot the video. And I figured out of the gate, there aren't going to be that many videos that explain this feature. And Apple's videos are probably not what people want to see because they're going to be really slick, but they're not necessarily, I mean, they're marketing videos. They're not going right. to be necessarily like slowed down enough for people to see what's right. going on. And in the end, it was about five minutes long, which, you know, I kind of feel like could be too long, but at the same time, I felt like I really packed it in with stuff. So, um, but it was <laughs> worth doing because of that, because it was, it was how much, how many words, like you said, how many words would I have had to try to write to convey what I could just show in a video? Yeah, I, it, I, I honestly feel like it. That's the sort of thing that just can't be done verbally. Uh, it, and you know, yeah. it, it, I th even even just little things like, look, here's what it looks like in this app. Here's what it looks like in this app, and and they're all sort of monochromatic. And you can go through a bunch of stuff in the Touch Bar uh, apps. You know, switching from app to app and you know, doing things and using the control strip. And it almost feels like a monochrome screen. And then all mm -hmm. of a sudden you're in something like maps <laughs> and it's, it is all lit up like times square. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's wrong yet. I, I, I but it is, you know, it, it, it is such a different thing though. And all of a sudden when your keyboard, like maps is probably the best example, but it, it, when your keyboard lights up with all those colors, it is a weird, different thing because I've been using uh, laptops for, I don't know, a long time. <laughs> you know, at least 15, 16, 17 years since I first bought one. And I had one at the school paper before that. So, you know, probably 20 years. My keyboard's never lit up in color before. <laughs> yeah. It's a yeah. It was surprisingly weird to me. It really was uh, when when you get the bursts of color. It really was surprisingly interesting to me. Yeah, the calculator is the other one that struck me because they there are a few of those keys are like in orange. They're like super bright. Yeah, um, and they're still keys, but they're super bright. That maps it's it's basically putting yeah. up the same icons that are in iOS, and they're very colorful. That is the by far the most colorful implementation of sort of standard buttons. But like keyboard, the calculator. I thought calculator was really instructive, not only in the use of color, but both calculator and James Thompson's PCalc app. Mm -hmm. um, those were those were both instructive to me in realizing that what I what I think is the right way to handle the touch bar is as an extension of the keyboard and not, I mean, when all the questions of like, why wouldn't, why, why would you need a touch bar? Why wouldn't you just want to use the Mac interface? It was that idea of, I don't know how to do this with the keyboard, which means that I'm going to get to a certain point where I have to take my hands off the keyboard, move down to the trackpad and click on some UI on the screen. Yep. And so the calculator was that moment where I realized, oh, I can put like square root and cube root and log and sine and cosine yep. on the touch bar and I can do numbers and then immediately just move my hands slightly up and go tap and yep. now I've got a result or, or, or conversion, you know, Fahrenheit to Celsius or something. And my hands stay, I was already up 
on the number row, right? And my hands mm-hmm. just move up. And that was that moment where I thought, oh yeah, this is why this is, this is where this shines is yeah. I just stay on the keyboard and the touch bar kind of just is an extension of the keyboard that, um, and is that how everybody's going to use it? I don't know. It's so early. We don't really know, but it felt to me like that was the moment that unlocked like I see why you would use this, and and, and when I um James sent me uh, a beta of pcalc where when you tap the function keys it brought up a uh, a palette of all his functions in the UI, and and what that meant was I tap the, the the touch bar and then I had to take my hands off the keyboard, move to the trackpad, and then move the cursor up and then click on which one I wanted, and I sent him an email back and I said you know I think this is wrong, I think what you need is to put your functions in the touch bar mm. because because it feels like a defeat if I touch the touch bar and then I have to take my hands off of it and move around with a cursor. And so he changed it. And now it's like your most recent uh, functions and conversions appear in the touch bar. And it's like night and day. Cause now I type in 32 and I tap conversion Fahrenheit to Celsius and that, and it all happens on the touch bar and I never have to sort of switch modes to uh, mousing around. Yeah. And I think that, um, Calculator is the Apple's calculator is an interesting example in a couple of ways. I, 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 t- my gut feeling is that that's one of the apps that got it most right. Yeah, me too. And the one thing too, and I know Apple said this is true, but my experience testing the device is that it is clear that Apple's Mac app engineering teams spend a lot of time working on touch bar support for their apps because there are obviously some of the oddball apps like the ones that are in applications slash utilities you know only two of those got updated did you really go through every one i didn't i did i i I I you want you want to hear the list i mean it's in the review but it's like so so um you uh activity monitor I, that's the one that gets me. Activity monitor and uh, terminal are the two utilities that got. Oh, updated. I knew about terminal. I forgot about. Right. That. I forgot that terminal right. was that was buried away in utilities. I used yeah, it so but, much. But they also updated, and this is some of their stock, and some of them are their sort of app store apps. But calculator, calendar, contacts, Finder, Final Cut Pro, GarageBand, iMovie, iTunes, Keynote, Mail, Maps, Messages, Numbers, Pages, Photos, Preview, QuickTime Player, Safari, System Preferences. And then there are a bunch of apps that use the sort of standard text editing interface, and they pick up a text editor yeah. touch bar interface. So like text edit and and notes get that get that uh, text editing interface so, too. So there's like there's like more than a dozen. They, they did a lot. I mean, for people who say Apple doesn't care about the Mac, it's like they built this whole new bit of hardware and then they updated all of these Mac apps to support right. it. That was a lot of work. Right. And there's a lot of work in... Uh, I might be missing something actually, but there's there's the, the, the hardware engineering work of actually putting an embedded iOS device into the keyboard with this every the system on a chip and mm-hmm. having a a way that it can interface with the Intel side. You've got like this arm little arm computer running on your keyboard and it communicates with the Intel side and the Intel side even does the because the one of the things that the the iOS device on the touch bar doesn't have is a GPU. So the Intel side does the GPU rendering. And it has to go back, but it's all done securely. And and there's a whole bunch of ele- you know electrical engineering going on there. That's and it just you'd never know it, right? You know, it's sixty frames per yeah. second, just like iOS. It's instantaneous touch. It's just mm-hmm. like you know you'd expect from any Apple iOS touch device. So there's the engineer, the physical hardware engineering of that. Um, 
there's the and then the second level is the Mac programming side where all of these apps were updated with whether they got it right or wrong, none of them seemed half-assed. They all seemed like a lot of thought mm-hmm. went into it. All of these apps got updated with touch bar support, which is a lot of work. Um, but then in between those two, there's the Xcode side where the the people who work on the APIs and Xcode itself had to do all the work to make it so that Mac developers have APIs and, and you know, a, a simulator so they can test it on machines that don't actually have a touch bar and all of that stuff. So an awful lot of work went into this. And I, I completely agree. It's, it's, to me, example number one, that whatever else is going on with the Mac and some of the machines that have gone way too long without getting updated, it's clear that Apple is, is invested in the Mac. I really think the touch bar is, is proof of it. Yeah, and we can debate and I've been trying to make this distinction for the last couple of weeks. It's like part of what I think a lot of us do is try to understand why Apple is doing what Apple's motivation is, why Apple made the choices it made. And I want to separate that from the judgments about whether these are good decisions or not. Because I think we could debate whether doing the touch bar is a good decision or not. And we can debate the price of these systems and we can debate, um, you know, there's, there's so many aspects of this that we can, that we can talk about, but I think you can't debate the fact that Apple made a major investment in the Mac platform in this, in this, um, this particular computer, because we're seeing a huge bit of hardware engineering happening here and a whole lot of software engineering happening here. So we can, we, you know, we can debate whether we think this was the right approach, whether this was a a waste of time, whether having a laptop focused input device method is good or bad. If it's going to be a gimmick, there's all those things, but you can't debate. It was a huge investment on Apple's part to do this. And if they really didn't care about the Mac, why would they do it? Right. Exactly. I, I just I do another it. laptop with the latest Intel chips and move on, yeah. right? I mean, that, they could do that. Yeah. Here's why I, I think calculators is a great example. The Apple calculator app is a great example because the buttons. So Apple, it, at least I don't know, ever since like iOS seven or so, and then when you know the the uh, the Yosemite, whenever the Mac version was that got the sort of iOS style visual refresh, Apple has a very consistent calculator look and it's you know mostly based on the color orange um yeah they you know orange buttons so when those buttons are on the keyboard it makes the keyboard look calculator branded right like and so mm-hmm. if you use apple's calculator you know what it looks like it's got this sort of just orange calculator look you see these buttons that are orange and it's it, it to me is a very cool way of making the touch bar feel like it's part of the app it's it's a yeah. really cool move and all of the all of the functions that are in orange on the UI are orange on the touch bar. And right. so it's like, yeah, you you mean you immediately get it. You're like, oh yeah, right. Like they of course they are. Of course the equals button is orange. Right. So I when I, I was uh, at the event uh and I got to talk to people at Apple, um, and they showed me the cal and they said and uh, the, a couple of, of the people I spoke to, you know, said, this is one of my favorite examples. And I know it sounds silly, but they showed me calculator. And then at first, like in the default calculator mode, the only buttons you have up there are divide times minus plus equals. And they said, no, that it seems silly because those buttons are there. You know, you can hit shift on the equals key to get plus, And, you know, it's, it's not like you can't type that. Um, but they said like it in our testing and with the team that was using it, 
we found that we loved this and, and surprising how many people at, on the Apple at inside Apple who had access to this and were working on it, loved the calculator thing because all of a sudden you don't have to, th- it, it, it makes your laptop keyboard feel more like having that extended keyboard that has this, the thing on the right side where you have number pads and dedicated buttons for those features. Right. There's a reason why some people who enter numbers a lot like having an extended keyboard that has that keypad over there. It gives you uh-huh. sort of the – now, the number layout maybe isn't quite as convenient having a horizontal row of numbers, but not having to worry about ever hitting shift or the fact that uh, that they're not consecutive, You know that minus is right there, but plus you have to hit shift to get – I mean, it's all sort of weird typing those those operators on the keyboard – on a regular keyboard with, if you don't have a numpad with the touch bar, it really is natural. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that calculator is the best example and that, that um, they really do run the gamut. I do think that this is going to be an interface playground where we're going to learn a lot in the next year or two where Apple and third-party developers try a bunch of stuff and find out what the right, approaches because it's all over the map now like how calculator is a good example because there are there are buttons you want to press that that aren't on keys like there is no i mean there's an equals key and there's a there's a plus and minus and you know but like multiplication is the asterisk and division is the slash and it's like no no we're just going to put the symbols on the on these virtual keys at the top it's like that is the like almost purest example where there are things you want to type that you don't know what keys to press so we're going to just draw those keys on the touch bar and you know now you know how to press them and you go all the way down to something like final cut which is this incredibly intricate context-based set of of sometimes it's buttons sometimes it's got like sliders and scrubbers and things and you know and then there's a bunch of stuff that's in between where some some of them you look at it and you go "Hmm, i don't know if this is very useful and then others you you look at and like maps and you're like whoa you know what am i what am i seeing now there's a there's a i can i can tap the the gas station button now and it'll show me all the gas stations around me and and i think over time we'll we'll figure out um what philosophically like what's the right approach what do people what looks good and what do people actually want to use uh i found safaris to be useless and i i I have to admit i have to admit that i didn't spend a lot of time configuring the touch bar in a lot of apps just because i ran out of time and i'm going i feel like i will you know once i'm using a, a touch bar equipped macbook pro as my you know main laptop uh I will get in to do that, but I found Safari's default implementation to be useless, which is that it shows thumbnails of your tabs in your current window. And I, I mean, maybe daring fireball is identifiable because it looks like a gray button, but they just look like a bunch of what almost every web page just at, at shrunk to that size is indistinguishable. They're just little white uh, with things, you know, little white with gray, <laughs> It's just yep. too small. I, I couldn't possibly use that. I also am a little bit baffled, and and I say this also. This is a larger complaint I have: is they added these these tabs, Safari tabs in El Capitan, and I like them and I use them, but they're not on iOS to this day, and they're not in the Touch Bar, which also kind of baffles me. Like I've told you, I want these you know, these sites and they've got these nice little icons and they're important enough that I want you to keep them tabbed all the time. Oh, the pin um, tabs, you mean? 
Yeah, the pin tabs were not yeah. not accessible either. So right. it's a little bit, and, and yeah, the graphic. That, that's a great example of like, well, we can do graphic previews of of all the pages that you've got in your tabs and make it a slider. It's like, well, that sounds great. That's a really cool way of showing that this is a a, a, a feature that has more than just buttons in it. But in practice. I don't think it makes any sense. I don't think it works at all. I and that that's the, there are a bunch of things like that. That's I, like, you know, I, I get why you did it, but. I, I honest to God, I, I feel embarrassed <laughs> that I didn't even look because it maybe I actually, yeah, maybe you can actually go in and configure it to do this. But so if it's already there, I'm going to go, <laughs> after we're done recording, I'm going to go set up my, my review unit to do this. Um, but I think it should be the default. I, in my gut is, I think that, that Safari should just default to putting, next tab previous tab buttons up in the don't show me they which are, one just say next tab previous tab and make them nice and big and have them say next tab previous tab oh yeah uh no it's got backward and forward yeah i don't want backward it. and forward i want next tab previous tab because i feel that the shortcuts for that is kind of convoluted it's it's like right. control tab and control shift tab which is really a, a fingerful so you just, get that you get that with those visual previews. I do wonder, and I I, I suspect that there's a guideline somewhere that I, I haven't seen because I'm not a developer. I do wonder about the touch bar being used for informational purposes. If somebody laid down an edict that like information that isn't permanent, that's like temporary text, should not go in the touch bar. Because like I'm baffled why the now playing um, in the <laughs> control strip brings up uh, a scrubber for iTunes, which is like, I'm never going to scrub for music, but it might be kind of fun to, to if I pop that open to see the name of the song I'm listening to. It's not there. And it, it yeah. won't, it'll show you in Safari, it'll show you little tiny thumbnails of part of the page of the web page that you're, you've got loaded in your tabs. Yeah. But what it won't do is put up like the name of that tab right. of that page, right. which would be more, way more useful. And I wonder if they've decided like, no, ephemeral kind of like text labels of what's in a page is not something yeah. you should do in the touch bar. I'm not sure I agree with that, but I, th I, I it seems like there's a rule at work here that they don't want to put like a, a, a text readout. They, it, it's only for controls, not for information. And even then I would say, but but a sliver of, a, a horizontal sliver of a web page as a preview is useless to me too. Yeah. Um, I am reminded, and, and I, I skimmed the um, user interface guidelines for the touch bar. I should... Get, go back to that and reread them. Read them thoroughly, um, but I can't help but think that no matter how well written that document is, just the the evidence of using all of Apple's apps is that it's still sort of a wild west, and yeah. they're feeling. And now the third party developers can get in on it. We collectively are feeling our way to how we should use it. And what I'm reminded of is how in the very early years of the original Mac, let's say somewhere around. 1984 to 89 or so. I would say it took four or five years. The Mac was famous for its, you know, human interface guidelines right from the beginning and that there was consistency and a, and a toolbox that developers could use so everybody's alert would look the same. But you go back and look at screenshots from like the, the you know, almost close to the 90s. I'd say right around System 6 is where things got very definitively, you, you know, Mac. Oh, that's Mac like, or oh, this app was clearly written by a developer who does not know the Mac. You just see stupid things like somebody who spelled okay, okay, a y in a dial <laughs> on, on a button, right? Like to a Mac user's eyes, that it, it just jumps right out as eh, that's a mistake. 
right? You do not spell okay, O-K-A-Y. But if you look back at like 84, 85, 86, like Mac dialogues, you'd see that all the time. And, and or, or just weird layout, you know, like not having a default button in a dialogue, right? It, it, things that you or, or putting the default button not in the bottom right corner, it, just things that eventually became like, um, what's the word? Idiomatic, right? Idiomatic Mac UI design. We don't have right. that yet. That's the what's an idiomatic design for the touch bar of an app, the touch bar interface for an app. What type of features are are should go in there by default? We don't have it yet. Yeah, and and I, I'm excited by the fact. I mean, you could argue like maybe Apple's app should show a little more unification than they than they have, but I'm okay with it the way it is, which is everybody, it looks like, with some rules and restrictions, everybody has uh, tried to develop the right approach for their app and their content yeah. and their users and, uh, and sort of let the chips fall where they may. And I think that's great because I, I, I mean, right now, I think I could say with certainty that there are apps that do it wrong and that do it right. And we can argue about which is which, yeah. but like there is such a variation. And maybe it'll turn out that something like what Final Cut does is totally the right way to do it, which is you got sliders and you know you're you're intensively using it like that like the DJ yeah. app on stage, right? And maybe you know if I had to choose, I would guess that maybe we're going to back off of that and say actually what we saw with DJ and Photoshop, what we see with Final Cut Pro is maybe too far, too intense too much of a UI instead of a set of shortcuts. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and maybe we'll back off of it. Maybe not. Maybe it'll turn out that that UI is what people love and it's having that surface there is the best thing in the world. But my gut feeling is that it's like, that's a big, that's a big step to go and I'm not sure that it's the right approach. But I'm sure people at Apple were debating it too. And, and it doesn't have to be one or the other. I mean, it, it, right now and right now it isn't. Um, in fact, my biggest criticism of Final Cut is more that it's so complicated that it seems to be not customizable in any way. Yeah. And, and that's, for me, the fact that they went back to this classic, like, from 10.0 customized toolbar interface to cut, let people customize the touch bar, I really like that because... Um, I, it should be personal. You should be putting the stuff on it that you care about the most. And I don't know how many people do that, but I'm glad that that's there and that it is customizable. I worried that it wasn't. I mean, the next step should probably be to make the uh, let third parties have access to the control strip, yes. but one thing at a time. Yeah. Um, and I really like, it just feels so Mac-like in, in terms of uh, the way that the cu customization feels exactly like customizing the toolbar in a window in, mm -hmm. a, in a Cocoa app. It's, you know, and that's, you know, it's by design and it's no surprise, but it really just goes to show that the people who wrote these APIs are, you know, knew what they were doing and they did it the right yeah, way. Yeah, and, and I... You know, it. I always say when they show these things on stage and people ask afterward, I'm sure they do the same to you. Like, well, what what did you think? Um, a lot of it's like, well, it looked good. <laughs> Let's see what the details are. And when I first customized the toolbar, I was like, oh, wow. Okay, good. Like, they did a really good job. Like, I had this whole worry about how do you use, like, you move the cursor to the bottom of the screen and it like disappears mm -hmm. and suddenly you get a selection in a toolbar, but you, in the touch bar, but you don't see your cursor anymore, but it's still sort of there as a ghost and you can move it around. And then if you move it back up, it pops back out on the bottom of your display. I'm like, that's weird. How are they going to do that? And when I used it, I was like, oh, it makes perfect sense. Like they nailed it. They, they really did 
figure out a way to do it where you never feel like suddenly your pointing device has gone into a different parallel universe and nothing makes sense anymore. It, like it all held together. And um, I'm impressed by by the the kind of care that they took with that stuff. It's a little thing, but I appreciate. So when you go into editing mode, the buttons that are there jiggle. It's a mm-hmm. little similar to, um, you know, very similar, and it clearly drawn from the home screen customization in iOS, where if you want to move your apps around in iOS, you know, you you hold the home button and you go into the mode, and all your apps jiggle. Um, it's a good way of playing off something people are familiar with. Uh, I feel like that that idea that like if you're going to put them in reorder mode, make them you know, jiggle around. But what I really like is that to me, I think it's, it feels just slightly more of a, of a serious jiggle than the iOS jiggle. Like the iOS one to move more or less in a goofy way. And they kind of twist. Yeah, they twist. And the Mac ones just kind of go back and forth. And now maybe part of that yeah. is that it's just horizontal. Maybe they, you know, but I think they could have made them twist if they wanted to, even if it made the corners, you know, go off the, the top it just feels more appropriate to the mac in a way that the mac is 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 a a more serious platform than ios i do like the personality i mean that's one of the things i said in my yes. review that you quote that you quoted i always i always have the moment of like if, if john links to me what what part will he quote um and and that one was that i it's just a, it's a reporting a true feeling I had, which is th- this has more personality than I thought it would. Like the an- it has a lot of animations. I think if you just read about this feature, you would not imagine that that everything animates and like the touch ID sensor when it comes on, there is this arrow <laughs> and the arrow like stretches like it's made of rubber as it points yep. at the touch ID sensor, and it is, I mean. It's not wacky, nope. but it is whimsical yes. in a way that it totally didn't need to be. And and there's just little stuff like that that I think, you know, th- there is there is personality here. It isn't just this kind of gray, uh, we, gave, we made you a toolbar, enjoy. It's like a little bit more um, enthusiastic, and, and, and I like that. I like that the, it's got personality. It's a, it's a Mac-like whimsicalness, though, that... Mm-hmm. that- touch here to log in with uh, you know touch id and the it and the arrow you know stretching it, that to me feels right for the mac and it, it should be it would it should be if they did something similar on ios it it would be more whimsical and appropriately so mm-hmm. um yeah i think i think that's right uh horace i quoted this thing that horace did you wrote a week or two ago um where he he wrote a piece about uh, let's see if i can find it here about, oh, I love that piece. I did too. But, you know, where's Apple going with the Macintosh? And, you know, an analogy about, you know, why isn't the Mac a touchscreen? And I'll put the link again in the show notes so anybody who hasn't read it can do it. Where for art, though, Macintosh? But he wrote, um, let's see if I can find the quote. Uh, It cannot take on the role of being the future. He's talking about the Mac. That belongs to the touchscreen devices. It will not morph into a touchscreen device any more than a a teen's parent will become cool by putting on skinny jeans. (laughs) What it will do is become better at what it is hired to do. I'll put a link in the show notes. I promise. I'm doing it right now. I'm copying and pasting. I'm so infamous for saying I'll put something in the show notes (laughs) and not doing it. Here it is. Copy paste there it is it'll be very well done 
the um it, it's great I, I mean i wrote a piece about the same time uh called like parallel philo- or perpendicular philosophies yes and it's the same thing it's like why does microsoft insist on doing these touchscreen things and everybody's like oh god i can't believe apple's not doing them it's like well number one reason is apple already has a touchscreen os so what apple's doing is differentiating they're saying and and this can be hard for mac users to hear although i don't mind it it's like the mac is like the classic computing metaphor that Apple makes and you can't push it too far because it becomes an iPad or an iPhone then. And they've already got that. Like they don't need to do a touchscreen tablet. Like they have a touchscreen tablet already. So the Mac has to be defined by some fundamental premises and Apple. And and again, you could debate it and say, no, 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 Microsoft's doing the right thing. But what Apple has decided, and they've done this again and again, they've said it publicly, repeatedly, is the Mac is for traditional computing with a pointing device. And in the case of a laptop, it's very clear. It's two perpendicular surfaces, but it's even true on the desktop. You've got your keyboard tray or the bottom of your laptop, and that's the control surface. And it's got the keys, and it's got the touch bar maybe, and it's got the trackpad, and then you got the screen. And the stuff happens on the screen and you control it from the from the perpendicular surface that's in front of you. Yeah. And if you would rather directly manipulate with your hands, that's fine. That's not what a Mac is. Right. Macs aren't for that. Yeah. I, I this adult with you know becoming a cool by putting on skinny teen, jeans is the best it's, it's the best metaphor I've yeah. thought of I, I, I've seen I because I didn't think of it he did but <laughs> I love it. And to me the way that uh, uh, that Apple has adopted some of these things like the animation for that arrow is exactly the same way where it's it's not trying to be iOS it's not trying to be you know it's doing it in a Macintosh way and I have to say personally on the flip side I got to spend I spent like half an hour in a Microsoft store uh, when I was in San Francisco last month for the Apple event and they had a the new Surface um, I don't know what they call it Surface the, the Ro- Studio yeah Surface Studio um, had a couple of them set up. And a whole bunch of apps like Photoshop and 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 stuff, uh, and there wasn't you know it, it was it wasn't that crowded. Um, there actually, I, I'm not making fun of them for having stores that aren't crowded. There was actually a line for people to try out the VR thing they had set up. So there was a hmm. thing there that was drawing a crowd of it, it seemed to me like at least ten people at a time constantly waiting to try the VR thing. So there is something there that is drawing people in the store, but the the surface uh, wasn't. So I got to play with it, and uh, old person trying to dress like a teenager is exactly that. It's better than anything I could say. I had other complaints about like the latency compared to the Apple Pencil on iPad. There, it was low latency. I mean, Microsoft is you know definitely did some work on that, but it was not like Apple Pencil. But the weirdest part was the way that that just exactly what you would think, like having a mouse based interface, but then using touch and a pencil to do things was weird. Like where all of a sudden, as your pencil gets near, you see a cursor on screen right beneath it. And it's like, weird. You know, I feel like I'm using, it's not that much better than one of those airport, uh, terminals where you get your boarding pass. And every time you touch the screen, the windows mouse cursor moves to where you touch it. Um, it, it, it just feels like old person dressing like a teenager is exact. I, I yeah. can't, I can't think of anything better than that. And I, it would just break, I guess, break my heart to see Apple do that to the Mac. I guess the the one thing that that I, if I extended to Hor- Horace's me- 
uh, metaphor a little bit is it is possible for something theoretically for something like Windows to have a like a chrysalis and like turn into a teenager, right? I mean, they could evolve Windows to the point where it is a touch interface. The problem is they've got everybody who's using Windows PCs and they don't want to you know they don't have a they they tried it right they tried it with with uh, metro and with uh, their arm based stuff and in the end the the they retreated back to the power of their successful windows platform and they've made it better but like they have one operating system and they can change the context but it's one operating system and there are challenges with that uh, and i don't you know it's not that they're not unsolvable they may be solvable but it's like i, I I I'm not saying that fundamentally Microsoft is right or wrong or Apple is right or wrong, but if you look at what the assets of both companies are, Microsoft has this incredibly successful desktop operating system, traditional computer operating system, and they haven't done anything in mobile. So what do you do to get to to approach sort of like the mobile world and the touch-based world? You got to take Windows and you got to jam it in there. And if you're Apple, you got the Mac, you got iOS, they're fine. You don't need to do that. So they're not going to do that. And so when people say, you know, one of them is right and one of them is wrong, that may well be. I'm not quite sure it's that clear. I think it may be a much more kind of shades of gray situation. Depends on your use cases and who knows where we'll be in five or 10 years. But I would I would argue both companies are doing what makes sense for them because, you know, Microsoft yeah. has the assets it has. And Apple is very, Apple is extremely fortunate in fact, they're basically the only company in the world who has a, a very successful touch-based operating system and a traditional computer operating system. And so they don't need to jam them together. They can just keep them apart. And everybody like us who's like, I love the Mac. I want to keep using the Mac. They're not going to make a Mac that's totally unrecognizable because at that point, why wouldn't you just use a PC or or switch and use an iPad? So, the, the you know, the, Apple has the luxury of doing that. And it makes perfect sense that that's what they're doing. Yeah, I also will say that I found Windows 10 running on the Surface, uh, what's it called again? The Studio. Studio, Surface Studio. Uh, I I was very lost and confused, just going between apps and navigating the system, and it it there were I found it I honestly found it confusing, and part of it is just that I I haven't used Windows regularly in over a decade. Um, yeah, but and it's very I, I all my Windows skills were really good up to a point, and then they Windows has evolved enough now because I've got Windows ten on my my iMac in boot camp and. Um, Windows has evolved to the point where all my old Windows skills, which were pretty good, are just useless now. I, I have no idea what I'm looking at. So that, that doesn't help matters. It, but I will say that I've spent time a few years ago with like when the original surfaces, and I didn't find those mm-hmm. confusing at all. Now, I didn't really love the whole idea where you can go into traditional Windows mouse, mouse pointer mode right. and run your traditional Windows software, and you go into this other mode, uh, the Metro mode, and it's all touch-based. But I got it. Because the Metro thing was clear, like, oh, these are big, chunky touch targets. And, and instead of tiled windows, they're, you know, they're going on more of a 2D thing and you swipe side to side. Um, and this is, you know, all new and everything is big and, you know, big thumb sizable touch targets. Yeah. Oh, and if I want to run my, you know, my, you know, Microsoft Excel, I switch to this other mode and it looks exactly like Excel. I know exactly yeah. where Plug I am. Plug in a mouse. Right. Yeah. I, I I guess I can see why they went away from that and why people rejected it, but it uh, it made way more sense to me to go that way. And I think part of it was like under Stanofsky, they clearly wanted to because they had the the ARM based Surface tablets that only had the Metro mode, and I really feel like that's 
where some of them, the ones who have good taste in Microsoft wanted to go, like good taste in the mm-hmm. Apple sense. And it, it was a much, to me, a much more compelling device. And I think it only failed because it didn't get developer support. That developers kept uh, yeah. writing the old classic, you know, Windows Win32 API apps. So I was I was at the D conference when they did that demo the, for for the first time, and I remember seeing all the Metro stuff and thinking, you know, with the original Surface and thinking, damn, that is really good. My, here comes Microsoft, you know, everybody watch out. And then they did that moment where they're like, and if you want to wa- run Office, instead of showing what I expected to see, which was like a demo of a touch based Office, like Office for iPad is today. Right. And they were like, boom, now you're in the Windows desktop and you plug in a mouse and a keyboard and you have a PC. And I thought, no, 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 no. I remember, you know, I I wrote a piece, you wrote a piece about it. We were talking about it. And it was like, no, no, you're so close. And I still believe like the right thing to do was for Microsoft Microsoft to say we we have taken all our knowledge of Windows and we have built a touch based operating system that will we'll, you know it's related and if Steve Ballmer wants to call it Windows something we'll call it that but it's different and the Windows RT was like that but it was like already compromised and half hearted like they had already kind of sold it out that all said given the strength of Apple and and uh, and Google in mobile operating systems. And what has happened with all of Microsoft's attempts to make just a mobile operating system, I'm not really convinced now that even if they had done what I think would have been the best product, that anybody would have bought it. Because they would have been selling, they couldn't have leveraged any of their, or much of their strength, which was Windows, to get people on board. So they'd be starting from scratch like they did with Windows Phone. And so, you know, I think it would have been a way way better product, but I, I think feel like by the time they got to Metro, and making that demo, the ship had kind of sailed already. Yeah. I think it was the right Which thing. Which is too to, bad because it was cool. Yeah, yeah, I think it was the right thing to do from a a design perspective, but it was not going to work from a market perspective. It just wasn't going to yeah. gain traction. I, I don't know that there's anything they could have done to make Metro better, just better in terms of if we had done a better job designing it, if we'd done a better job making the initial set of apps, it would have succeeded. I don't. I don't think it... I don't think it failed because it wasn't good enough. I think it failed be- for other reasons. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's tough because you look at Microsoft and you know Microsoft's Microsoft's ambition was that of a dominant operating system vendor, but their position was that of a newcomer essentially because you know Android and iOS gobbled that yeah. market up very quickly and they were left kind of with not a whole lot yeah. like they were they're in the in the blackberry camp down and also receiving votes where these people with five percent of the market and that's tough that's a tough position to be in i i don't you know i i love a lot of what microsoft's doing now but it, it's a it's still a tough position to be in because they do need to be windows and try to innovate and you know i know a lot of people especially creative people people who use um pen input all the time on their mac uh with a with a tablet and all that people who really kind of going ape over the over the surface studio and i'm not one of those people um so it didn't really thrill me and in fact when i looked at it i thought i would much i think i would much rather have a desktop ipad yeah <laughs> but that's well, me i will say this that, that i i if if you draw for a living i don't know if you draw comics if you are an architect or something like that i can totally see how the surface yes. tablet is a device for you but i i don't 100%. i don't see any reason to like that device if you're not if you're not someone who makes a living with a pen in your hand 
It, no, the funny thing, and and then there, and there's this is part of the people coming back to people being grumpy with Apple about various things. It's like one of the things I've seen. It's like, yeah, if you're a cartoonist or a comic book artist or or uh, anybody who is who is using these certain kind of inputs, there is going to be a class of user for whom the Surface Studio is the perfect computer. And you know what? A lot of those people are going to be loyal Mac users, and they're gonna they're gonna feel torn, and they're gonna feel. Like Apple has left let them down a little bit because Apple isn't providing them with that same kind of product, um, and all of those feelings are valid. But I would also say it's also valid for Apple to say we're never going to make a product like that. Like that is not how big how big a market is that? How many how many Surface Studios are going to sell? Right? I mean, it's a cool product that will be perfect for a very specific group of people, and they should love it because you know, because it's it's made for them and it's brilliant for them. But I'm not sure that I can see the logic of Apple like making their next iMac like a Surface Studio. I, it just doesn't make sense I could to me. see, not in the n- very near future, not within the next handful of years, but I could see within 10 years, I could see Apple having a 30-inch iOS device. Oh, I agree. I mean, that's, that's the... Um, at some point, I, I was talking to somebody about it, and that's what I said: is it's way more likely that Apple makes a giant iPad right. than they make a touchscreen Mac on your desk. Right. Like and way more likely. Way more likely. <laughs> I, 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 so much more likely that you know, says the guy, says the guy who thought Hillary Clinton was locked to win. Yeah, that's right. Well, it just. <laughs> it, I do it, think the only ma- are you are you the guy from Princeton who said it was a ninety nine percent, or are you Nate Silver who said it was uh, you know two to one odds because yeah. that that makes the difference there. Oh, I woke up loving that guy from Princeton, and uh, I woke up the next day <laughs> wanting, <laughs> wanting to have a talk with him. He wrote a blog post, and it's just kind of hilarious because it's like, dude, you said greater than ninety nine percent probability. I don't think you know how probability works. Right. Like that was, and that was Nate Silver. People were really ragging on Nate Silver about it. Not to yeah. get too much into the election, but it's like Nate Silver all along he got crap from so many people saying Donald Trump had a yep. chance. And he's like, look, if we miss our numbers up, then she's gonna have a she's gonna have a sweep. But yeah. if we miss the if the polls are all off two percent down, which like by less than they were off for Obama Romney, yeah. just which was like off by three percent. If they're off in Trump's favor by two percent, he's gonna win in the electoral yeah. college. And like he said that days before the election. <laughs> and they were and off, that's what happened. They were off by two percent. Yeah. She, yeah. So it was totally was up, within, within that cone of, po- of probability. The final polls nationwide had her up 3%, and she wound up winning the popular vote by 1%, which I'm by not 1%. arguing. And it was not, please don't email me. I know. I'm not arguing. That means she should be president. <laughs> I know the rules. The idea, though, is that if a candidate, uh, especially a Democrat, only wins because of the Electoral College, only wins the popular vote by 1%, that there is a very high probability that the Republican candidate will win the Electoral College, and that this, is exactly will happen. Yes, and it's... This year. The, in 2012, Silver said that... Um, that it was actually in Obama's favor. The way the states were stacking up, he could have lost the popular vote right. by half a percent or something, and he would have won the the electoral right. But for this election, the way it stacked up, right. uh, that that and they factored it in like four weeks before. You can go back and look. They they had like an eight, ten, twelve percent chance that Trump would lose the popular vote and win the electoral college. And so, like you know, probabilities are hard. It's hard for people to understand them. The New York Times had that field goal the whole time, <laughs> and that was one of my thoughts on election night. Was like, I guess you missed the field. Goal. <laughs> I mean, right. it's a, a thirty. Any NFL fan when they say her her chances are like making a thirty eight yard yard field goal in the NFL, it's like you know what people miss thirty eight yard field goals all the time. I ask Buffalo Bills that's, fans. That's yeah, <laughs> yeah, it happens. Uh, let me take a break here and thank our next sponsor. It is one of our best friends of the show. It's Harry's. Harry's uh, makes 
shaving products. They make them themselves. They are ter- terrific. Big razor companies. I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to name the uh, Gillette, Schick. They have this annoying habit of putting out new models, you know, the, the Mach 7, whatever the hell they call the new thing. And what they do every time they put out a new model is they raise their already high prices. Unlike those guys, Harry's doesn't want to upcharge they're going for low prices. That's why they made their razors even better. They have just upgraded their whole line of razors and handles, and they're keeping the prices exactly the same. They're not just putting in a new line to make you feel like, well, now I have to spend more to get more. No, you pay the same prices that they already had, which were already lower than the national big brands, uh, and they've improved everything. Their five-blade razors now include softer flex hinge for a more comfortable glide, they now include a trimmer blade for hard-to-reach places, which I think for most men at least is like that little area right under your nose, um, a lubricating strip, and a textured handle for more control when it's wet. It's I, They sent me one, and I have to say I love my old one. I've had it for years. I mean, I've had it since Harry started sponsoring my show, which was like I think around 20 years ago it feels like. Uh, and when I put the old one away, here's the thing. It still looks brand new, which is bizarre. It is Their stuff is built to last. But the new one, the textured handle, it's clearly better. Instant upgrade. No problem. And it's still just 2 bucks per blade compared to $4 or more that you'll pay at the drugstore for brands like Gillette. Uh, they own their own factory in Germany where they make blades. They don't just buy like cut-rate blades on some kind of open market and then just slap a Harry's label on them. They have their own razor blade factory in Germany where they make these blades. Uh, and then they can keep the prices low because they sell them direct to you. Uh, Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades. They'll send you their popular free trial set, which comes with a razor, five-blade cartridge, and shaving gel. Uh, it's free when you sign up for a shave plan. All you do is pay shipping. Uh, plus, there's a special offer for fans of the talk show. Get a bottle of Harry's post-shave balm added to your order for free when you visit harrys.com and use the code TALKSHOW. No the, just talk show at checkout. You will get a free bottle of their post-shave balm. It's good stuff. Smells good. Feels good. I've got it. It's really, really nice stuff. So go to harrys.com right now and use talk show at checkout to claim your free trial set and post-shave balm, which is better than the deal you get from most other podcasts. So remember that. Uh, that's harrys.com, code talk show. You talked about the control strip before we, we move on to other things. But do you, you remember? I mean, <laughs> this is the stupidest question I'm ever going to ask. Do you remember the col- control strip from the classic Mac OS? Do I remember the control strip? Yeah, I actually booted up a uh, an emulator the other day to look at it to just remind myself. But God, I, I had that on my PowerBook. I don't know if you remember like CPU, Connectix, PowerBook Utilities, which like added items to the control oh, strip. Oh, I loved it. Yes. Yeah. Totally right? loved it. I mean, that. that was that was that was like the dock of its day to put it, was it in better. context to no. people who are modern Mac users. Yeah. But to me, it was better. It was one of the things I mean, famously, or maybe not famously, because I was a little maybe more obscure, but the first like three, four years at Daring Fireball is mostly me bitching about Mac OS ten and the ways that the interface is not as good as the classic Mac OS and control strip is one of those things where it was so perfectly Mac like every pixel of it was perfectly of the way that things were supposed to look in that OS. 
and just everything the close button the little the little th zipper thing that you would just tap to make it expand and contract um the uh, just everything about it was so nice and it was so elegant and it felt so right for the mac system wide that you just have this little thing yeah. and then you eventually you could drag it around to any corner um uh, did it have to be in a corner i think it had to be in a corner right no it could be it could be could anywhere be along either side anywhere along the left mm -hmm. or right and you'd zip it open and you'd get all these little icons and they opened it up to third parties and third parties did some really useful stuff uh and like the mac equivalent mac os 10 equivalent of it is all these little turd icons in the top right of our menu bar right? or the menu bar yeah in the menu bar yeah. we've still got them all those little yeah, icons right up there in in the old mac os that those would all be control strip items and your menu bar would only have menus and then anything else would be in a control strip which was really nice it bothers me yeah, to no it, end <laughs> 15 years later that we don't we don't we had something so elegant as the control strip and now we've put all these turds in our menu bars i wonder if bartender does bartender let you put their bar anywhere? I wonder about that. Hmm. Like, because bartender is kind of like that, where you can actually pull things out of the menu bar and put them in the little bartender bar. And I wonder if you can, you can, uh, yeah, you can. I think you can move it around. Hmm. Um, I should look at that. I looked at bartender. I remember looking at it years ago, and for some reason, I rejected it. But maybe I should take another look. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's not. I mean, it's ha it's kind of hacky. Although it's got some things going for it, I use it to clean up my menu bar because there's some items that I don't need to see most of the time, but I occasionally need to get to it. But it's it's in the ballpark, right? And, and the idea there is, could you imagine pulling all of the stuff off the menu bar and putting it in this little little bar that that you dock somewhere else or you pop up somewhere else? And yeah, we just. I think the answer is screen real estate is that that in the control strip was designed to be very small when collapsed and then you'd pop it open to get to the UI and it floated above everything and then you'd turn off Apple Talk or do whatever you need to do or or um, connect via um, PPP to the internet mm. and dial in with your modem and then you and then you snap it closed and you, and it just is <laughs> little this little tiny thing in the corner and then you're done and now we've got these huge monitors and they're just littered with menu bar items yeah. on the top but yeah Control Strip was great it was it was an unsung uh, hero of the sort of latter day. Uh, classic Mac OS. Yeah, really was. And I'm so I think it started on laptops too and then it was so popular they they brought it to the desktop to every computer even though it started on PowerBooks. I I haven't I wish that I'd asked while I was talking to people from Apple, but I'd, I I can't help but think that they named the new thing the Control Strip that it's not a coincidence that it's, you know, built by people who remembered the old one cuz it's so similar in concept the way it zips open from the side. Yeah. Um uh, I mentioned it to them. I was like, "Oh, that's a familiar name." And they're like, "Yeah, we knew. We knew. Uh, you know, some of you guys would notice <laughs> that we reused the name." Um, and you know, it's it's uh, it's a cute reference. Like, I think that's what they were going for. Was those in the know? It, you know, Apple's aware of all these things that it has the intellectual, you know, property and the trademark for. And that was a, a name that they had, and it was doing a similar job, and so they used it. Yeah, and it just has similar character. You know, just the way that it animates. Zoop, zoop. Oh, it's so nice. Yep. Uh, anything else on the MacBook Pros? I, I have one, I guess, broad topic about it, but anything you want to talk about with the new MacBook Pros? I don't know. I, I mean, it, it's the other big thing about them. Well, I mean, we, we mentioned Touch Bar. We mentioned Touch ID. The other big thing about them is the ports. Hmm. 
And I feel uh, sort of talked out about it because we've been talking about it since the MacBook came yeah. out a year ago and almost two years ago now. And certainly in the last month since the Apple event. And I'm kind of over it. Like, it's a poor transition. It stinks. Every, everybody knows it stinks. Everybody buys adapters. Uh, there's a period where everybody's got the adapters and has old hardware, and then eventually it goes away. And I think USB-C and Thunderbolt 3 is like a good direction to go. And the only way you get there is by going through a transition. So here we are. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if... I, I'm I, I'm kind of drained of outrage for something like that because I do think it's superior in almost every way. Every time I try to plug something into the back of my iMac and get the USB orientation wrong and have to flip it over and peer into the port to make sure that I'm doing it right, I think, well, USB-C and Thunderbolt 3 solve this. This is dumb. Um, and so, you know, I, I get... I get people complaining about it and they're right to complain about it. But at the same time, I feel like in the long run, it's going to be, it's going to be great. And I'm, I'm going to miss MagSafe. Um, I will, but at the same time, I think it's also cool that you can on the, on the touch bar models, you can plug in your Mac on either yeah, side. <laughs> that is great. That is so great. It's so many, yeah. <laughs> there are so many times where it's it, uh, the worst is when you're far enough away from the power where it, would fit to the right, but not the left. <laughs> yeah. Like it's just at the end. But then there's just other times where you just don't want to have to drape it around the outside where it just is inelegant. Like, uh, I, I mean, one case for me, it's as, as an East coaster is sometimes if you're on the Acela on the, you know, in between, on the East coast train, the Amtrak Acela, you can get, mm -hmm. um, there's some really cool seats that have a table in between them, but you're facing people on the other side. And the tables are relatively, as you might expect, it's not a very wide table. Uh, you know, you're pretty close. But you have enough space where two people back-to-back -back can, you know, put their laptops, you know, fair, you know, easily. But if you want to stretch the power around the other side, it, it's, you know, you can do it, but it, it, it's so, it would be so much easier if you could always just plug it in on the side closest to the wall. Yeah. Yeah, so it's again. I get I get people's complaints about it. Uh, maybe I'm just a little jaded because I've seen it all before. It's like, yes, everybody will complain. Yes, it will be a pain. Yes, we will need adapters. Then we'll get over it, and then in a few years we'll look back and think, wow, I can't believe that we used that stuff. I, this stuff is I, so much better. I linked to a couple of examples from like the four years ago MacBook Pros, and they it was so uncanny how the almost word for word you didn't even have to like edit out like you know one you know the name of the port they would just be like uh, you know not enough ports too thin not you know they're exactly word for word what people are saying about these i also believe i've yep. written about this too but i believe firmly that apple's aggressive traditional not just in this case with the going all usbc thunderbolt 3 um but they've you know that they've done this so many times in the past that it it brings about the future where being all USB-C is fine sooner than if they had stuck a couple of legacy yeah. ports on on the devices. If they'd put a you know old school USB and one old Thunderbolt or something like that. Um, and I firmly I can't prove it. There is no way to prove it without the ability to, to fork the universe. You know. Uh, but in the alternate universe where these new MacBook Pros have like a USB port and a Thunderbolt port, uh, I don't know what other ports people still wish they had, but or an SD card reader or something like that. Um, I really believe that two or three years ago, 
it's less of a it it's less of a USB C everywhere world. Oh sure, I mean I I think I, I it's only a matter of degrees because you I think you made this point on Daring Fireball, which is if you have legacy ports, you have no motivation to switch right. because you can just keep using your legacy ports. But once you've switched and you have no more of the old ports, then there's no longer any point in buying anything using the old ports and you move to the new ports right. and that, and and then you move on. And and it, the longer you leave the bridge, and Apple's done that in the past where they've left the bridges and they've done it where they've ripped the band-aid right. off. And I this time they decided to rip the band-aid off and I I'm I'm okay with it. I in fact the people that I I have the most sympathy for are probably like the photographers and videographers who use that SD card slot. And I totally get why it is a pain to have to go from having no reader to having a reader. Um, as somebody who used an 11 inch air, um, I didn't have a slot. Yeah. So <laughs> I already, I already felt that pain, but I get it. Yeah. I totally get yeah, it. Yeah. That's, I get that one too. I, I, I do get it. And it, it speaks to how useful the S the built in SD slot is to, serious photographers that Apple did it ever in the first place because it's the least Apple-y thing that they've done yeah. in a long time. It is. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's like since they put S-Video on the Macintosh yes, TV. Yeah, right? It's it, like, why is this port here? Right. It has to be. If it's so... Unre- it, it, you know, really, it's it, it the SD card slot on Macs is the return of the floppy drive. I mean, it's way, you know, the, you know thousands mm-hmm. of times faster and thousands of you know, times more storage, but it's, you know, it's a floppy drive. Uh, it is the least Apple-y thing. I know. So it's, it, you, the fact that it's so useful is the reason they did it in the first place. But the fact that they removed it is the reason why, you know, Apple was the first company to remove the floppy drive. Right. Although, I mean, I just bought, um, for experimenting for like podcasting stuff, I bought, uh, an SD card that does Wi-Fi. It's not the iFi. Mm. It's a it's a Toshiba, I think, one, and it's pretty good. Um, you know, it's again not perfect, but I can see Apple's philosophy here too of saying, you know, you can get a card reader, and then there are also new wireless technologies in in the SD cards, in the cameras. Yeah. You know, there there are other ways to transfer this stuff, um, or you bring a cable and attach your camera direct. You know, it's not, but I I get it. I like I get why why that's a bit major inconvenience because that that was their you know their storage medium of choice and it had a reader built in. And now now it's gone. I I totally get it. That said, though, there's still a fair number. I realize SD is the most popular size, but there's still a fair number of people shooting on Canons that shoot uh, uh, the CF card. Yeah. And there's other cameras that sh- that use the super micro, almost like SIM card size. SD card, right? The super tiny um, one, yeah. And then with them, you have to bring an adapt. You know, usually it's. Uh, I think most people probably use there's SD standard SD card size adapters that you slide it in and then you put it in. So you're still, yep. you know, it wasn't an ideal world. And I feel like the world where uh, everything just works wirelessly and you can very very quickly airdrop things equivalent of airdrop, whether it's actually official airdrop or not. But just you know, plop a thing from your standalone camera to your MacBook. It's going to come quicker. Now that the SD card is not in Macintoshes, yeah, I I think that's true. Yeah. But I think I think maybe there'll be a little longer of a of a pain. The pain transition will be a little different yeah. there than for like USB yeah. stuff. But I just think back to like you know the iMac throw out ser- serial ADB and and SCSI all all in one throw for for USB, and this is this is a little bit like that. Yeah. Um, 
I guess the last thing I want to talk about is it, the 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 people arguing that these aren't pro devices. That okay, they're nice. It's nice enough, but it's not a pro device because it's not the fastest Intel mobile chipset. It's not the one that. Um, I don't want to get into the details, but Apple wants to use the low energy RAM and the use if by wanting to use the low energy RAM, they're limited to 16 gigabytes right now. That's going to change soon enough. I guarantee I would bet in 2017, there will be an update to the MacBook pros that support at least 32 gigabytes of RAM. Um, I don't know if it could go to 64, but it would be at least six, 32. Um, but there's people who would want just to name one thing that they would rather have Apple build uh, at least as an option, another level of MacBook Pro that, uh, say, has a better graphics card, uh, higher energy, the RAM that, that would support up to 32 or more gigabytes of RAM, even if it takes more energy, and would rather have a significant hit on battery life but a performance improvement and they'll just plug it in or you know get less battery life. Why won't Apple build that machine and let them buy it? Yeah, and I I, I get that. Um, although I think if you're Apple, you know what the sweet spot of your market is, and you know who's buying these things. And and again, it sucks if you are the person who's in the corner of the market that is small, but you're in it, so it's super important to you. And Apple looks at it and goes, are we really going to solve, are we going to build one reference sort of design for the MacBook Pro and it's going to cater to 2% of our market or 4% of our market? Are we really going to do that? And, you know, the customer, not everybody <laughs> needs to be targeted. The customer is not always right. Not everybody needs to be targeted. And that stinks if you're in that in that area where Apple's like, look, you're just going to have to suffer because we're not going to build this product. We would have to make major changes in order to build this product so that it would also overlap your yeah. needs. So I get that. I also think, though, Apple knows about the march of time and the march of technology. And as in so many of these Apple product designs, they're kind of looking ahead. And maybe some of that is that they expected more from Intel than I, I Maybe that's true. I can't true. help but I think also that's think, true a little. I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I and I have this. You talk about next year. It's like, yeah, you'd think Apple would use its influence with Intel, maybe to say, <clears throat> how about a thirty-two gig ceiling next time, right? Can you work on that? Because we really could use that. But in this same enclosure with this same power profile and all of that, next year's stuff is going to be able to do way more than this year's stuff, and the year after that, because this 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 model will probably be the same one that we see in terms of the the shape of it and the the touch bar and all of that. This is probably also the 2018 MacBook Pro and the 2019 MacBook I, Pro. Honestly, I think so. I, and every year they're going to have more capabilities fitting in this small case. <laughs> so this is the year where it's kind of a tough ask, and next year it'll be. Better. Better and and that again stinks if you're not in there now and you need a laptop now. It, I'm I have no arguments for you. Yeah, that's terrible. I get it. All right. I think you know you have to think. I keep thinking about it from like a marketing perspective, product marketing perspective. Is that Apple has three slots for MacBooks for families of MacBooks, and they you know they there are gradients that blend between them at price points. You know, where there's like a hundred dollar every hundred dollars from like nine ninety nine up to you know four thousand dollars almost. You know, there's configurations that you can buy, um, but fundamentally, there's the MacBook cheap. In other words, price is your biggest concern, and that is the MacBook Air, and it has been for the last few years. 
the entire reason the MacBook Air is still being sold is to hit the nine ninety nine starting price point. Right. It's like the old plastic MacBook yes. was back in the day before it got eclipsed by the MacBook. You know Air. what? I forgot about this. The last time you were on the show, the last time you were on the show back in August, we were talking about MacBooks, speculating about what we're now talking about in hindsight. And you had said something about uh-huh. the MacBook Pro being the best selling Mac. And yeah, and that was t- everybody said no, yeah. no, no. It's the yeah, air. I, I because, heard from a, because the price yeah. is so right, good. and yeah. it, we're 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 th- me and you are thinking too much about people like us, and really. I heard from a couple of people who work in Apple retail stores and they're like, you just cannot even believe how many people, when they come in to get a new Mac, it, it's, it, and you can, you know, and they can, you could, you know, and they say, cause dealing with them and you know, these Apple, the people who work in those stores are very, it's very clear that these people just, you know, they want to get a Mac. They're definitely, you know, you can tell they're going to buy one, but they're not definitely, there's no doubt they're going to get the air. It's just a question of which one, because you know, about a hundred dollars is the most more they're going to spend. And it's all about price. And I'm a, I'm a Mac, I'm a MacBook Air user, yeah. right? I, I I haven't used a MacBook Pro in years. So for me, I think I got I was too busy yeah. focusing on like the flagship yeah. and the one that's got the probably the biggest profit yes, margin, right? Right. But that's not the same right. as I mean, and that's why that 999 13 inch non Retina right. Air is still right. there, right? Because that is that is price to move, right. and that's the price that gets you into a Mac laptop. Right. And it's a pretty you know what? It's a pretty good system. It's pretty it's a pretty right. good mix of power and price. Right. It really well, is, even to this day. And people who are thinking of the old PC industry and the way that everything every like six to eight months you'd you know just put new chips and you know everything would get faster and you'd always be you know swapping out. And the way that the MacBook Air is effectively unchanged and the price is unchanged, the price isn't going down. They're keeping it at nine ninety nine. It's it's because people keep buying them. It is a best-selling device, and they don't mind. The people don't mind. It's fast enough for them. So, you know, you could say that Apple is under, like, some kind of moral obligation to, you know, cut the price or, you know, but it's, you know, business-wise, you know, that's that doesn't make any sense. It's a very popular device, and it exists just to hit that price point. Then there's the MacBook Pro, which is... Uh, Right now, it's the same size. There's no argument in size or weight between a 13-inch MacBook Pro and a a MacBook Air. It is just the, you know, if you want to say Pro, it's really, you know, like I I emphasize the word nice in my review. It's the MacBook nice or the MacBook premium, if you want to call it. It is, you know, it's in every single regard, it is nicer. Uh, It's faster, has the retina screen, and now it has this super bright retina screen. And then in between is the MacBook uh, thin and light. Which, you know, that's what now is called the MacBook 10 years ago or eight years ago, it was the MacBook Air. And you still pay a, pre- you yeah. pay a premium for the thinness and lightness uh, and the niceness. And it has a retina screen. Uh, and it just, it's just, it's just sexy, right? I mean, there's just, it is like the little convertible sports car, right? It is really, really, I was in a meeting. Uh, I'm on this panel at Drexel University that meets like once a year, uh, like alumni advisors in this thing and we had a meet i don't go to meetings very often i we just had a meeting and there was a guy who had the 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 you know the current macbook and all i could think is god damn that is a nice that is a nice looking laptop i don't it's not really for me right but it's like i you know and i think he's you know he's just typing emails on it and it's like wow that is a nice thing to carry around um is there room for something else like that would be yeah, I, this isn't my proposed marketing name, but the the MacBook Max or the MacBook the power the power right. MacBook Pro or you know whatever you want to call it, something that w- 
trades battery life and maybe some thinness and weight for sheer computing power? Well, it's the equivalent. I mean, it's a slot that they haven't had for a little while. Because if you think about the yeah, the Air is like the plastic MacBook, and the MacBook is where the Air used yep. to be. MacBook Pro is still sort of where right. it was, and uh, in terms of thirteen and fifteen, and then there's the slot that used to be like the the lunch yeah. tray, right? The cafeteria tray, the seventeen inch MacBook right. Pro, and they just don't make that computer anymore. But you know, and and I think this is a lot of the pro um, fear about Apple is that laptop doesn't exist and the Mac Pro basically doesn't exist because it's been right. abandoned since it was released 3 years ago. And so here here we are. Like what is this what does this all mean? Um does Apple care about that that market enough to make a product for it or do pros have to kind of eke out their livelihood on computers that were not really made for them because that's the best that Apple wants, not can offer, wants to offer, is willing to offer. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, they, they totally could. I, I'm a little surprised that they didn't take the old MacBook Pro and stuff something even more powerful yeah. in there in the old enclosure and just say, look, and we've got this thing that's got old ports and it's got, yeah. it's got the latest Intel processors and the latest GPU and go to ta and no touch bar and just, it's also available. You can max it out. You can load it up with stuff. And if you really need it, you can, you can take it I away. I sympathize. And I'm hearing from readers and, and listeners and I see it and I believe, I believe them. I don't think it's like an idle threat, but I'm hearing from people saying, I, I think I have to switch back to windows, you know, because I I need to be able to buy something and it's clear Apple isn't going to make it for me. And that is the advantage of yeah. the, it's always been the advantage of the PC marketplace is that you well Apple's whole Apple has holes in its lineup and right now its hole is a notebook that is optimized for let's just say well I was going to say power but that sounds like it might be energy uh performance sheer performance the most ram sure. and the fastest chips and the fastest graphics. They don't have that. They don't sell it. And there are PC laptops that have you know, the fastest Intel CPUs and incredibly fast, hot GPUs. And, you know, they just, you know, sacrifice battery life and wait for that. Apple doesn't feel that. The, the hole in the PC market is, in my opinion, niceness. There's nothing you can buy on the PC market that's as nice as a MacBook Pro. Um, obviously, that's subjective. Obviously, the difference in that, and it drives some people nuts, is you can measure performance. You can you know, run a benchmark and come up with a number. There's no benchmark for how nice the machine is and how much I appreciate the new hinge when I lift open the thing. But I feel it in my gut and I believe it. That's what you give up. It's a shame that there are people who love Mac, o Mac OS 10, love the Mac, and but have the that their personal needs are such that they want that machine because I don't think Apple's going to make it. Right. And I think. Uh, yeah, and it's so easy to come across as as not have, be, having sympathy for them or not caring about them, and I, that's not how I feel at all. But I, if you're Apple, you have to make a calculation about you know. First off, there's all the things about what what's the product we we if they went down this path and then realized that you know that it was going to limit them to 16 gigs of RAM, and they're like, well, you know, we thought Intel would come through with something different, but they didn't. Maybe that happened, or maybe they didn't. They decided 16 was good enough for almost all cases. Um, what is the number of people for whom the highest end Mac laptop is simply not sufficient? What is that number? What's the size of that market? And who are those people? And are they influential and all and can, of that? Can they and then wait you a year? 
Yeah. And so you ask that and yeah, do they have to buy something right now or or can they wait a year for something that will be, you know, the better, more efficient, more powerful in the same space. Um and that's for me that's the question. Like if Apple, I'm sure Apple has done that calculation. We know that Apple has very smart product marketing and research people and they look at this stuff and they've got access to data that we don't because they are Apple. And my guess is, because these are the decisions they made, that they looked at that and said, that market is not sufficiently large enough. The market we're cutting off by making these decisions is not sufficiently large enough for us to not make these decisions. So we're going to do it. And maybe they're right. And maybe they're wrong, right. right? Maybe they're wrong. But if they're right, it doesn't change the fact that there are lots of people, potentially, just not enough in that space who are going to feel like Apple has yeah. abandoned them. And you know what? Apple has abandoned them. Apple has said, look, if you need 32 gigs of RAM in your laptop and this kind of, you know, like um, I'm in the Relay FM Slack and, and Shahid uh, Kamal Ahmad is in there and he's a, he's a game developer. And he's, I think he's going to buy one of these because he's also a Mac fan. But like he's doing Windows development now and he looks at this and Brianna Wu is like this too. You know, doing, she knows about game development stuff and, she, and they're like, uh, you know, for for 3D and VR and stuff like that, this hardware is kind of not good enough. It's like it, and and for gaming, it's certainly not good enough. But Apple has made that decision yeah. for years now. Of like, we don't care if it's not good enough for gaming. We don't optimize for gaming. So, I, I guess what I'm saying is, it it could be that Apple's miscalculated here, but it could also be that what we're hearing is the the people who are basically being told by Apple, we're not going to make a computer that will satisfy you. And Apple's not wrong to make that decision necessarily. And they're definitely not wrong to be angry about it. But it's not a sign that this was a misfire, that some people are going to buy a PC because Apple can't satisfy I them. think that it's also the case that Apple designs to you know, eliminate, makes choices for their customers because they truly believe that they know better and they want to keep customers from making a mistake. By which I mean, right. let's say you go into the Apple Store and and you know you've got the money to spend and you want to buy uh, uh, the best MacBook Pro that you can get or the best MacBook. Let's say in case they had a different name like the MacBook Plus or whatever. Um, Obviously, there are some truly expert users, game developers, like you said, people who really do know exactly, yes, I don't care if I only get five hours of battery life instead of 10. I want the machine that has this power. I think Apple knows, though, that there's other people who would come in and say, well, if this machine is is $2,500 and this other machine is $2,500 and thicker and heavier, but look at the specs. It's got more gigahertz. It's got more RAM. That's clearly the better machine. I'll buy the one that's better. Or maybe it's more expensive, right? I don't know. But whatever, if it can be mistaken as being better in a, in their mind, but it isn't for them. It's it's gigahertz, extra gigahertz they don't need. It's extra graphics that they don't need. It's battery life that they are, would appreciate if they had it. That it would be a mistake for them to walk out of that store. I think Apple, obviously it's not, these MacBook Pros are not the best hypothetical MacBook Pros from November 2016 for every single person. But I think what Apple is, I think it's, you know, restating what you said, what Apple has tried to do is make the best machines for the most people. And that keeps yeah, some of those and, people from buying the wrong, going the wrong way. 
Yeah, and and it's it's not to come back to like when the customer like myths we have about companies succeeding or failing based on keeping their customers happy. The truth is that it's not it's not a you choose to make everybody happy or you choose to make some people unhappy. The truth is the choices you make are going to make somebody unhappy in most cases and you get to choose who you make unhappy. And Apple makes their choices and now we'll have to live with them and we'll see quite what happens but you know if if apple views the decisions about battery and about weight and about size and and says that you know 90% of our users care about that stuff and 1% of our users care about this other thing then you know i can see why they make that decision right and and that doesn't doesn't make it any more uh, bitter if you're somebody who's kind of on the outside looking in saying I'd really like more than 16 gigs of RAM in my laptop please or a better GPU um, but it, it's an open it's an open question like uh, pro like you said it means nice um, that's probably true and the Mac Pro it's the same question of like does Apple Apple as a company right now Making is making decisions about what their audience is for these various products. Who are their customers? And it may be that the Apple of five years ago would be like, oh man, we got to get the high-end, super high-end developers and content creators and people who used to use Linux and now use a, use a Mac because they get the command line. We got to get those people because we got to use them in the Mac. You know, maybe the Apple of today is like, yeah, we're not interested in those people. We we want a mass market of people. The MacBook Pro is nice, but it's not going to be for everyone. And that's their decision to make. And if they want to turn their back on certain markets, it might be a good business decision. And if I was in those markets, I would be pissed off. I think all these things are true. I don't think if people in a certain market uh, switch to Windows or Linux, it means the MacBook Pro is a bad decision necessarily. Right. Because it, you know, it, it, Apple, <laughs> Apple will not be surprised if that happens, right? It's not like these came out and Apple was like, what? They only have 16 gigs of RAM? <gasps> we're shocked, right? They made that decision. They knew what the ramifications were going to be. And, you know, it's, it's interesting if that's the case, that a bunch of people maybe that they've kind of wooed over to the Mac over the last 15 years with OS X are now not in their, uh, not in their target anymore. And yeah. I will say, I just think, though, that, you know, again, it, things could change. You know, the past does not always predict the future. But if you look at the last 10 years of MacBook sales, you know, it's, you know it's, it has gone down a little bit in the last year, but I think that's mostly been people waiting, you know, but... Yeah. Um, it's it, Apple's priorities, prioritizing a thinness to an obs almost obsessive degree, uh, prioritizing battery life to an almost obsessive degree. You know, and it, it, it really, I, I come back to this many, many times that the order of your priorities matters tremendously. Even if you have like two, you know, the customer and the Apple have like the same top four priorities, you know, but they're in slightly different order. It makes it makes mm -hmm. a tremendous difference in the resulting product, and Apple's list order of priorities has shown to be very successful. Yeah, and that's that's the thing is is uh, Apple Apple it could be making a a bad decision here. It's entirely possible that they're making a bad decision here, and we'll find out what the market says about it. But they have their priorities, and a lot of it is something that is just sort of like quintessentially Apple. And, you know, when we say they prioritize the battery, I mean, I think the, the right thing to say there is really like they prioritize the weight mm -hmm. and the thinness and the battery comes third where the battery has to hit some kind of right. a metric 
but but really no more than that because every inch, every minute, every hour of of battery life above what they think is optimal is added right. weight and thickness that they ref- that that you know you don't right. get. You you get enough battery to hit like with the iPad it's whatever 10 hours. Yep. And that's it. You don't get any more right. battery. And the, with the MacBook, it's it's a little more complicated, you know, because it's battery life and power saving in the operating system and all of those things. But you know, that's that's their priority. Right. So so they're gonna they're gonna put thinness and 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 lightness and and battery life and power in maybe that sequence where somebody else would put power first. I'm and I'm generalizing. Go from there. But to to my gut feeling. In the early years of of that inflection point, where most you know the most Macs sold were laptops and notebooks. I should say I'd, Apple calls them notebooks instead of laptops, but notebooks instead of desktops. Right? There was that you know, and it used to be yeah. because notebook computers were so phenomenally expensive that it was really a a, a luxury item just to have like the lowest end power. Yeah. Um, and at the inflection point where they became the most popular. Uh, max i felt for years it was very consistent where apple would say you could get six hours of battery life and in the real world you always got you seem to get about three and a half or four hours like but apple would say six and it was always you know it seemed to me like it was for me flying coast to coast you know five six hour flights it never seemed to be enough to go on a full charge coast to coast it was right you know in real use and that's before before they had right. wi-fi uh and then there was, it, you know, at some point when they hit, you know, I think the Intel transition definitely had something to do with it. All of a sudden, the battery life did start creeping up. And it seemed like that was a, prior, a higher priority for Apple on an annual basis, where it really was suddenly getting six hours of battery life. And you really could get seven hours, eight hours, ten. And it seems like once they hit 10, they were like, we're done, you know. But, and now, yep. you know, that will we'll hold that point steady. And you know, and I know that the ten isn't necessarily ten for all tasks, but ten under their, you know, testing conditions. Yeah, they're light light use ten right. hours, right? Because if you if you really are doing editing audio or video or something like that, it will it will bleed that thing dry right. way faster yeah. than that, and right. that's that's just how it is. That's that's not what they're yeah. shooting for. All right, let me take a break here and thank our third and final sponsor. Long another long. This is like a greatest hits of daring or of uh, talk show sponsors. Backblaze. Backblaze is unlimited native backup for Mac and PC. Here's what you do. You go to backblaze.com slash daring fireball. You download Backblaze to your Mac. Install it on your Mac. It's a simple little, it goes in your system preferences. It's just a system preferences thing. And then it just starts, uh, you, you sign up again, no credit card. And then it just starts backing up everything on your Mac to their, their secure cloud-based servers. Everything. Do you have an external drive that's maybe like three terabytes or something like that? It'll back it up. Do you have two external drives? It'll back them both up. It might take a while, depending on how much you have, but you don't pay more for more space. It's just five bucks a month for unlimited, unthrottled offsite backup per Mac. Five bucks a month. That's it. Uh, I've been using them for years. I've recommended them for years. Uh, they have so many features that it's everything you might want them to do, they can do. Um, let's say you need a restoration of everything you've got. Well, you, if you want to, though, they can restore by mail. You can purchase a hard drive with all your, da- overnight, all your data on it, and they'll overnight it to you on FedEx. Because let's face it, downloading 
three terabytes of stuff or however much of stuff could take forever. Maybe, you know, in some kind of emergency situation uh, where you need it all, you can get it overnighted. Uh, you can use like their iOS app and log in and just get one file and email it to somebody. You can just access all the files on your Mac backed up uh, through Backblaze. Uh, so anything from one file to getting everything you, on your Mac overnighted to you on a hard drive, they can do. They have over 200 petabytes of data that has been uh, stored by Backblaze. Over 10 billion files have been restored to their customers. It is a great addition to local backups, like having an external drive running Time Machine or um, I, I use uh, SuperDuper to clone my startup drive every every day or two, uh, a great utility. Having an off-site backup that runs automatically, just silently and visibly in the background, just software that never gets in the way. It's not like all of a sudden when Backblaze starts backing up your stuff, you know, the fans spin up. You don't even notice. I never notice. It just happens. Um, I can't say what a relief it is to know that if, you know, somebody came in and robbed my house or if, if the house burned down or something like that, that I, I, I don't lose my data. I, for years and years and years, I, that's how I lived. And it was always a nagging fear in the back of my head that, Hey, if something really bad happened, I could lose everything. And that would be kind of heartbreaking. What a, what a relief it is. It's a great service. I use it myself. Go to backblaze dot com slash daring fireball so uh, they know where you came from um, really it's it's a great deal uh, last thing on my agenda we've been going long uh, it's just this uh, the speaking of books from Apple uh, <laughs> yes the lowest priced MacBook the lowest price <laughs> MacBook from Apple is a coffee table book that they announced yesterday I think it was yesterday but uh, called uh, Designed by Apple in California. And it is it comes in two sizes, small and large. They cost $200 and $300, respectively. And it's uh, almost entirely photograph uh, photographs of uh, 20 years of Apple products. Uh, it, <laughs> I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it. I'm not... At, as outraged as some people seem to be. I don't think it's as much of a boondoggle as some people think it should be. I do think, though, that the optics of it are a little a little self-indulgent. Mm -hmm. No doubt. I mean, it's self-published, right? right? Uh, you made the point on Daring Fireball. Like, uh, they could have used... Expensive art books are a thing, right? I mean, people people who are used to thinking books cost ten dollars right. or twenty dollars do not know about expensive art books. There, you you mentioned you bought some very expensive, you know, art yep. books, Stanley Kubrick, uh, lots of books like that. And there, there even um, there's a book called Iconic yep. about Mac industrial, Apple industrial design. It's a hundred bucks, but they've got a two hundred and fifty dollars special right. edition. So, I mean, it's sort of a thing. But you're right; it's a little surprising they published it themselves. They didn't work with a partner. Um, I still feel like this is the ultimate Rorschach test for people's view of where Apple is today. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I'm not quite sure commenting on this tells us anything about actually, especially since they claim that they've been working on this for eight years and they decided to build an archive and had to buy 
buy some of their products on eBay in order to <laughs> in order to get them back because they literally didn't have them in the office. So I'm not sure this says a lot about like where Apple is today versus a, a, a progression of their design group for the last eight years. But um, but I think it is a vessel into which everybody can pour all of their fears about where Apple is going and use this as an example if they want. To. I had a part from my write up on it that I I wrote. And then I thought about and I deleted it. It's the sort of thing that I, I just, because uh, uh, I can explain it on the podcast why I deleted it. I feel like I can say it on a podcast with no reservations, but I felt extremely uncomfortable publishing it, which was something to the effect of, I don't have the exact words in front of me, I guess because I, I deleted them. Uh, I'll come out and say it. I don't think this would have happened if Steve Jobs were still in charge of Apple. But I don't know Steve Jobs at all. Uh, and Johnny Ive was, by all accounts, his closest colleague and one of his dearest mm-hmm. friends. And so I feel like a fool saying that because I didn't know the guy, and Johnny Ive knew him as well, probably better than anybody who worked with him. Uh, and so for yeah. all I know, uh, Ive and Jobs kicked around the idea while Jobs was still alive, uh, and I'm an idiot. But it f- feels to me like something... They wouldn't have done with Steve Jobs. That you know that Apple has made a book that Steve Jobs never would have published, dedicated to Steve Jobs. Yeah, I I mean one of the problems with the the hagiography of somebody like Steve Jobs, where we we turn him into this figure, um, this amazing kind of icon, is that he was he he was a person and his life was a was a continuum, right? And so. I think I saw somebody make the comment that I thought was really smart. It said, it's undoubtedly true that Steve Jobs of 1997 through 2002, whatever, 2005, mm. would not approve of this, right? Like, I, th- I feel like there was a pathological, almost, dislike of the past when Apple was trying to get on its feet again. And I think some of that might have been innate in Steve Jobs. I think some of that was also a management technique mm-hmm. that he felt like Apple was so navel-gazing and so focused on congratulating itself on its great achievements of the past that it had completely lost its way. And when he came back, he wanted to right the ship. I, so I, I think it's entirely possible that in the uh, last five years that Steve Jobs was at Apple, that his feelings were different. And that in talking to Johnny Ive about um, the idea that they didn't even have an archive and, and that that was a mistake and they didn't even have some of the products they designed and that when they set up, I mean, you could make the ar- same argument for something like Apple University. Like, is that too inward facing or is the argument there that you want to be able to document and teach your company's successes and thought processes so that the culture can uh, can pervade all of your employees and that, that other parts of the company can learn from what uh, these parts of the company uh, had to experience themselves instead of having to learn it again. I mean, you can make the argument that that's all of a whole and that, it, that that's as much what this is about as anything else. Um, or you could just look at it and say, this is self-congratulatory you know, nonsense, and it's a project where Johnny Ive got to hire a, a famous, fabulous photographer to take beauty shots of all of the things that he made so that he has got a souvenir when he leaves Apple. 
Um, also, you made the point on Daring Fireball that I thought was really good. Like, in another time, this would either be like an Apple employee-only thing, or I was thinking, or they'd print a thousand copies and make them available only at the Infinite hmm. Loop uh, company store. And today's Apple's like, yeah, we might as well sell them everywhere. Right. <laughs> so, I, did. I, I didn't, it didn't occur to me. I actually cheated a little bit when I put that hypothetical out there. I actually heard about this from somebody a while back, not super recently, which is why I didn't think of it early in the morning yesterday and it only occurred to me at night. I heard something about this project a while ago from someone at Apple. And the, uh, that what I heard then was that it was being made for Apple employees, that my mm -hmm. hypothetical was at one point, maybe the plan. And I think in that world where Apple made this exact book and, you know, made it or, or maybe since it's Apple sold it to Apple employees in sure. that world, I think these books would be going for over a thousand, Thousands over a thousand dollars, maybe $1,500 on eBay. Yep. And I think I, I, Literally, I would, Adam, I would strongly Adam, for Adam ink for ink, paper yep. for paper, the exact same book. I think that if Apple made them exclusive to Apple employees, they would be they would be selling for maybe $2,000 on eBay until the market calmed down. Oh well, sure. I I think that's the argument for why you sell it why you sell it right. to anyone is is why create a scarcity <laughs> that means that somebody else makes an $800 profit on yep. this thing that you made? Why, that's like selling a World Series ticket for $250 face value, knowing that it will immediately be resold on eBay for $1,000. Right. It's like, why would you let somebody else take right. that money? Like With printing books, they can not print as many as they want, but they can probably, because of the price, print as many as it needs to meet demand. And, you know, in a sure. way that, like, with Hamilton tickets, they can't make the theater bigger. And even if they could make it bigger, right. the seats wouldn't be good, right? It, you can't have Hamilton in uh, uh NBA-sized arena. It's not the same right. experience. So, Right, and those actors can only do seven right. shows a week. Exactly. That's all they right. can do. <laughs> this is... Or eight shows a week, right. however much it is. That's all they can do. Two matinees. You know, six night performances and they're right. They they're, they're, the scale is limited very quickly on you know, and so the fact that the tickets you know on the secondhand market you know are selling at exorbitant prices, well, that's the way supply and demand works when supply is has a, a hard upper upper limit. Um, right. So the alternative is you 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 know if you're Hamilton, the alternative is you either you either build in a no resellers. You know, you you can you can return it to the theater for your money back, but you don't get to resell it, or you raise the price, or you just accept that somebody else is going to make twice as much as you make on your right. product. And you know, Apple Apple's so big, and there's so many people who are interested in it that it 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 totally makes sense for them to say, why would we make this and not let anybody who wants one right. get one. Why would we do that? And so the more I think about it, the more okay I am with it. I still think the optics are bad because there's a lot yeah. of people who complain, but I think it's better than anything else they could have done, including not make the book. Like, cause I'm, I mean, I'm going to buy one. Sure. <laughs> are you? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I might get the small one, but I, I want yeah. one. I, I, but I'm a sucker for coffee table books. I am. I have a weak spot for them. I know. I, right. I own iconic. I, I, you know, I have all those Toshin ones about Kubrick that were absolutely gut wrenchingly expensive. Um, yeah. I'm a sucker yeah, it's for a, them. It's a thing. And I, 
Yeah, and and I think there's yeah, I think I think when you put it in that context of the big oversized expensive art book, it's not nearly as as ridiculous unless you want to use it as an example of sort of a cultural yeah. change or a systemic failure at Apple, which gets us back to the inkblot right. test, right? It's you can you can absolutely use it as a vehicle for that if you want to, but I'm kind of with you. Um I, I'm I'm okay with it. I think I think it's uh, definitely not what Steve Jobs of 2004 would do, but it might um, be. He's gone, and right. Johnny is there, and it might have been the Steve Jobs of of 2009. Yeah. The the eight year I, thing I is an interesting thing that came in Johnny Ives' interview with Wallpaper, and I, I will I put it in the right. show notes already. Um, the eight year quote though is ambiguous because what it, it, people are taking it as evidence that Jobs approved of the book, but it's not. What he said started eight years ago was their collection of all old Apple equipment. Right. That they right. they found, you know, like they wanted to look at some of the, I don't know, maybe, who knows what it is, like maybe some of the old uh, candy colored IMAX and they didn't have them all. Um, yeah. So they had to. But still, that goes to a, por- a point where Jobs was still around yeah. and they were reversing his policy, which was don't think about right. the past. I mean, like, can you imagine that Apple didn't have a Bondi Blue right. IMAX well, in their possession? Actually- but- for that it era, is, it sure. is proof that Jobs changed because when Jobs first came back to Apple in 96, 97, I guess it was 97, one of the first things he did is he found that they had a whole collection of all this old, uh, an yeah, archive. and they, he's yeah. just like, let's get rid of it, you know, and they didn't throw it in a dumpster, they gave it to, that, that's they my gave it fa- to a museum. That's my favorite Jobs quote well, was. ever. <laughs> um, it, it was, I said, get it away, and we sent that shit to Stanford. Uh. I just love the whole thing. I love, I love the swearing. I love the get it away. Like it's got cooties. It's just like it was repellent to him that this company that was in the that was going into the dumps had this whole thing that was like an, an a monument to its greatness. <laughs> and so that was his reflexive, uh, you know, get it away. And they sent it to Stanford, and that was it. Uh, which brings me to, and to me, this is the Rorschach test, is a sentiment. I've seen several people support it on Twitter. Uh, I best put by uh, genius, uh, like uh, uh, jailbreak sort of developer, Stephen Trofton Smith. Trofton Smith. Trofton Smith yeah. His quote, or his, his take on Twitter was uh, that it's only the last 20 years says a lot. This is Ives' put- portfolio not apples. My impression mm-hmm. is that his career is drawing to a close. And a lot of people, this isn't just because of the book. I've seen people say that ever since the the, the promotion to chief design officer and naming right. Alan Dye and uh, I forget the other guy's name um, as the you know hardware and software design chiefs right. under Ive. Um, is Johnny Ive checking out and slowly fading away, or is he you know? Uh, and I could see it two different ways. I honestly can see it, and I don't know. This is something that, as, as sometimes it, you know, it, it, knowledgeable about internal workings at Apple as I am, I don't really, I, I don't know anybody who has insight to it. And I think part of it is because Johnny Ive operates in such an isolated way within the company that he doesn't really interact directly with a large number of people, and never did. He's in a secure uh, enclave. One thing I've heard, I have heard that he has lately been ex- checked out of, not checked out, I guess, but not as directly involved with product design and that he has been hmm. uh, largely focused on architecture. Um, 
meaning mostly the obviously the spaceship campus and the, and new, stores. the new stores the new, the new right. store design and that maybe right. the other uh uh top level executive who's been working the most with Ive uh is Angela Arntz with right I- I also wonder about the car, right? You know, for a while there, the talk was that they were going to make a car, and they and they recalibrated that to making bits right. of a car. And I have to wonder if that was a little bit of a uh, uh, hit for Johnny Ive because he is a car right. guy. We know that, and perhaps one of the reasons they went down the path of making their own car is that Johnny Ive was excited about doing right. car design, and it sounds like they've made the decision to back away from that. Too, I think the idea that Ive has has um, conquered all all mountains there are no more lands for him to conquer and that he you know is easing his way out of apple is it certainly seems like a a legitimate scenario i don't like you i don't really have any evidence i've heard people say that 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 people inside apple have that impression too but it's not necessarily that they've got more information than we do about this too but it certainly feels that way like he's He's e- either eased into a very different role or he's just sort of fading away. It absolutely, this book does feel like the Johnny Ive era uh, dissertation, right. you know, kind of thing of like, here, here it is. Here's the work that I did. And, uh, and, and then you step right. away from that. The other side of it, though, could be that he is the most influential person in the company mm-hmm. and that not. He decreed that there would right. be a book, and so right. there's a book exactly now. like in the way that Steve Jobs could decree. I mean, a lot of things. You know, we're going to open source FaceTime. You know, the night before FaceTime uh, came out, sure. Uh, that Johnny Ive can say we're going to make a book, and that means they're going to make a book, whether other people object. Oh, and uh, I, I here's my a number one example. Can't believe it took me thirty seconds to think of it. it I, clearly, this is what happened. I don't know this. Nobody has ever told me this. Who knows? But. I would bet my bottom dollar on it. Uh, Johnny Ive said, I want to make a $20,000 gold Apple Watch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know for a, I do know for yeah. a fact that there were some high-level executives within Apple who thought that was nutty. Uh, I never heard for a fact that it was Johnny Ive himself who wanted it, but I know what I think, and I think it's Johnny Ive said, I want, I've always wanted to make a watch. Uh, one of the great materials that watches are made out of is gold, and so I want to make a gold Apple Watch. We got to make so a gold watch. It's the least yeah. Apple-like yeah. product that has ever been made, uh, or at least I shouldn't say Apple-like, but least like any other Apple product that's ever been made. Right, uh, right. It breaks. It breaks your Coca-Cola exactly. Analogy, right? It's and it is indulgent. Uh, I, I don't know, it, but it makes me think. I don't know that he. I think that maybe what's happened. Possibly. I'm not, I'm not saying that this is any, you know, Johnny Ive might be there for the next 15, 20 years, but that he has assumed a jobs like role of gets to do whatever he wants and has final say over all products. Yeah. But that his personality is such, and it's so different than Steve Jobs's, that he's almost a, 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 a Howard Hughes like figure, you know, a, a recluse. Mm hmm. In other other than now, I, appearing as a narrator in the product videos, I, I don't get. Well, I don't get. You know, I don't know whether that's true or whether it really is just that he has stage fright and so he wants to be on video. But he does seem to have fallen into this role as their credibility, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he's their 
those jo- Johnny Ive videos went from we want Johnny to explain things, but he's terrible on stage or he doesn't want to be on stage, something like that, right? And so we're going to make these videos and he's going to narrate them. But at some point, that that seems to, especially since Steve has been gone, that seems to have become instead like Johnny brings the credibility. Let us explain to you why what Apple does is making all the, we're making all the right decisions and all the steps we had to go through and all the incredible processes that we now use in order to make this product, right? I feel like that's now his role is as this in some ways almost like a like an icon or a totem of like the the apple everybody believes is there where they have their you know where they do their amazing design and they make all these incredible decisions to bring bring the future out of his white room into reality and he may not i mean he may only be spiritual leadership right. at this point i don't I've, know i firmly believe i really do like it, that when it comes to uh, a, a, an aesthetic decision like, hey, should we ship jet black in addition to regular black on these iPhone sevens? You know, should we do? We can do. You know, here's what we here's two blacks we can do. The jet black one is more expensive and time consuming, and if we sell it at the same price as the same memory, you know, storage and the same thing, we are going to take a hit on margins. But look at it; it's freaking beautiful. Yes or no? Do we do this? I think the final decision on stuff like that is Johnny Ives and not Tim Cook's. And I'm not saying that Tim Cook is is powerless in that way. I think it's because Tim Cook in his gut knows to defer to Johnny Ive. Like, like well, it's, I mean, like, this is... Uh, technically, ultimately, it would be Tim Cook's decision as the CEO, that the power resides in the CEO. But that I think within Apple's culture, Johnny Ive gets to make the product decisions in a similar way that Steve Jobs did even though his title is yeah. not CEO. Like Johnny Ive it wasn't going to be named CEO in a legal way and make you know actually make it his title because it's absolutely positively there are aspects of being CEO that he absolutely he simply doesn't want to do. And in fact, the, some of those aspects like of managing people and 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 direct it, it actually him being promoted to chief design officer and having two lieutenants directly below him actually made him less like the CEO of just the design group that he's, he's more like chairman of the design group. Yeah. He's, he's kind of like, yeah. And, and, and you could say he's kind of the head of product in a really grand scale. I'll, I'll give you a, an example from my life is for whatever, a you know, pl- decade plus I was the editor in chief of Macworld. That means that if I want the cover to say something and look right. a certain way, I, I get to decree that, right? Like Tim Cook being the CEO, right. but you know, I had a really good art director named Rob Schultz for many, many years. And he and I would work on these cover designs. And, you know, I would come up with lots of wacky ideas. And some of them, he would be like, no, that's not. Or we'd get, we'd have nine sample covers. And I'd say, I kind of like number three. And then he and my executive editor would be like, no, number three is not so good. Number five is the one. And I'd be like, all right, well, you know, I'm going to go with you. And again, I could I could say, nope, damn it, it's going to be number three. But I, I feel like Tim Cook maybe is that way with product and design, right? That he's got people to lean on. He's got Phil Schiller to work with on product and marketing. But he, he's got Johnny. And and if Johnny says, got to do the jet black, like, you could say no. But are you going to say no to Johnny Ive? Like, I wouldn't – it would take a lot for me to say no to my art director – and it, I'm sure it would take way more than that for Tim Cook to say no to Johnny Ive. And that's not that Tim Cook's powerless, and it's not that Johnny Ive always makes the right decisions, but he's much more likely to be 
th- right <laughs> than than Tim Cook, and Tim right. knows it about about some decisions, and so that that's perfectly yeah. reasonable because he's not forward facing, and because he's you know not on stage, and because he's clearly not as ha- as hands on involved with the day to day design of the actual products as as he used to be. Um, or if he is, there are these products that we that that even the typical the Apple employees who maybe have a sense that he's fading away wouldn't even know because all he's doing is working on the architecture of the retail stores. Which you know, someone who works in the you know uh, you know the the hardware design uh, group for the Macs, you know, feels like Johnny is putting less input into it. Well, you'd have no idea because he's off somewhere else, you know, designing tables for Apple stores. I'm not sure. I'm not saying I'm betting on that. I wouldn't be surprised if a year from now they say, you know, you know, Johnny Ive is retiring and moving to England, uh, you know, or or and taking an uh, you know chief design officer emeritus title with him, you know, like that, you know, still technically some part of Apple, but you know he's he's emeritus and he's not involved on a day to day. And I wouldn't be surprised if I, the other way, if he's as engaged as ever, but on other things moving, you know, forward, like architecture now, maybe a car five, six years from now, et cetera. Yeah. I, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with him. Um, I don't think anyone would, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like we've reached the point with Johnny Ive where if he wants to go do other things, nobody would say that he's wrong to do so. He really, it does feel like he's sort of done everything he can on one level. He's conquered everything. And, um, also I don't think I would feel like he's been there so long. I mean, he's been there since the e-mate for Pete's sake, right? He's been there so long that I'm not sure I would be like, uh, oh no, what will Apple do without Johnny Ive at this point? I'm sure some people would, right? Apple is doomed because Johnny Ive is leaving stories. But I feel like he, you know, not only has he built a culture, like Steve Jobs built a culture, but... New people have new ideas, never, and we've had Johnny's ideas for twenty years now. It would be a big one, and probably the second biggest that there ever was. But it's it's not going to be the biggest. Apple's not going to be the same without blank. No. So we've been That's through true. one that is so much bigger than you know the next three combined. That you know, and again, maybe they're not the same, and they shouldn't be the same because if they were the same, you know, what's the Dylan line? He that's yeah. not busy changing is busy dying. And Steve, you know that that is that I think I think part of this era is the continuity with with Steve, like with Steve leaving, with Steve dying. I mean, he left and then and then he passed away. But with with that whole period, um, Apple needed to show that it was still in business and still knew what it was doing. And so, like presence of Johnny Ive, super important. Steady hand of Tim Cook, super important. Right. It's been a few years now, right? I mean, we, we're we're passing through that phase of reassure us that Apple's not going to totally crash and burn without Steve there. And we can debate, and people will still argue that Apple completely lost it after Steve left. Fair enough, whatever, we can debate that. But I feel like on a very large scale, Johnny Ive leaving today would not be the freak out that it would have been six months after Steve Jobs Yes, I think that's exactly true. And, you know, I think this book is a very possible sign that it might happen. I think the next canary in a... in a coal mine would be an Apple event without a Johnny Ive narrated video. Hmm. Like if the, 
That would I don't be. Know, I feel. Sometimes I feel like that's his minimum involvement. Is he may he may be off driving cars at still, a test track somewhere in the world, but <laughs> the videos. But he comes back for I'm the video. I'm just videos. telling you, if you and I are sitting there next to each other in one of these events, you know, next year, maybe next year, maybe next time we see each other, we'll be at the on the new campus. All right, new Apple and campus. We're there Ooh. in March, and <laughs> you're there typing away, and I'm scribbling in my notebook, and a video comes up, and it's narrated by somebody else. I'm going to look at you, and you're going to go, hmm, hmm. I also have a correction yeah. to make. The Dylan line, I can't believe I botched it. It's uh, he not busy being born is being is busy dying. And I, I can't you All can't right. have a misquoted Bob Dylan lyric stand. Not when not within two minutes of mentioning no. Steve Jobs, especially. No. <laughs> if there's ever any way to haunt me, if he, he's gonna spook me mm-hmm. beyond the grave, it would be botching a <laughs> botching a, a Dylan line. All right. Let me thank our sponsors for the show today. Uh, Backblaze. Go to backblaze.com slash fireball. Harry's. Uh, go to harrys.com uh, and remember the code talk show and you'll get a really cool free trial set. And uh, Casper, the place where you go to buy mattresses, casper.com slash the talk show. Jason Snell, I thank you for your time. Where can people hear more Jason Snell? All right, you can get my uh, podcast about tech stuff at relay.fm. I host Upgrade and Clockwise, and I've got a couple other podcasts over there that are a little less techy, but they're over there. And then my uh, pop culture stuff is at theincomparable.com, and all my writing is at sixcolors. And I'm going to say something that you probably wouldn't do, I, but I want to bring it up is that sixcolors.com has a newfangled, I think it's, I don't forget when you launched it, but there's a membership at a very. One year ago, last week. And you get some nice extra stuff that I really like. I don't even know how you find the time to do it because you get like this weekly newsletter that I I don't know how you do it. It's it's monthly monthly newsletter. Monthly newsletter. I just figure I I just figure yeah, I don't so, see some so, of them in my we, inbox. <laughs> so so there's a monthly newsletter and there's a something we started a little bit later. There's a weekly podcast that's like so Dan Morin does the site with me. We used to work together at MacWorld and we talk for about half an hour about what's going on and that's a subscriber podcast and people seem to really like the podcast too. So it's a, it just sounds it sounds a little different, a little more yeah. conversational. So uh, yeah, there's some bonuses plus it helps support us doing the site because you know as you know better than anyone else making a living as an independent writer on the web these days is we didn't touch on it we don't have time there everybody listening to us surely has heard and read an enormous amount of stuff this week post-election about advertising and facebook and google and the pressures on advertisers and media sites and fake news and just the way that advertising, even when the money is there, can be a problematic influence. I it just re, if you're bothered by that, things like direct membership support at Six Colors is the way to act and to actually you know just do a little thing that can actually uh, help make quality. You know, I, as far as I know, you don't publish fake news. Uh, I I try not to. I try very hard. It's a great way to do it. Although, you know, that's, yeah, I mean, let's see. Let's see. Maybe fake news Uh, is my future, but uh, I hope not. uh, You know, and, you know, uh, my friend Jason Kotke just started a similar thing at Kotke.org. I signed up uh, like five minutes after he launched it, like sight unseen. he emailed me and asked me how mine and went and what what how it worked and stuff like that. It was pretty funny. So when he launched, I was like, "Oh yes," because yeah. you know he asked because he, he's using very much the yeah, same. And system I was I like, am. "Hell yeah, I'm in." So 
Uh, yeah. Anybody who likes independent media, like uh, the work that Jason's doing and that Kaki's doing, and uh, you know, go sign up. Anyway, thank you so much, Jason. I really appreciate it. Uh, talk to you next Thanks, time. Thanks, John.